Radical Personal Finance, episode 75. Today, we have some awesome questions, a couple of compliments, a few clarifications, and one important correction. I got something wrong yet again. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets. I'm your host. Today is Friday, October the 3rd, 2014. And today I have an amazing and packed Friday Q&A show lined up for you. I think you're going to have a lot to think about after today's show. I hope you enjoy it. In case you're wondering, the reason why I always play that music there is they say that when you start broadcasting, you're supposed to have high energy and you know be enthusiastic, and sometimes I'm not. So this my, my music, my intro music, and my theme music always gets me dancing. And so that gets the show started off well as far as on a high energy. So I hope you enjoy it like I do. Uh, even though I hear it every single day, I still dance to it, and I, I enjoy it. Uh, it's going to sound even better next week, and I'll let you know why when I when I get it sounding better. Today, Friday Q&A show, and I've got a good one lined up for you. And let me tell you right now, this show is going to be long, and I think it's going to be great. But uh, those of you who complain about the length of the shows, this show will be long. But let me tell you how to make it shorter, and let me tell you what the topics are that we're going to cover. So I'm going to answer a number of questions. So on my outline here, I'm going to answer a question from Beth about how to plan an appropriate amount of life insurance to plan for her 14-year-old son who has autism. How do you do that? How do you do life insurance planning when you know you're going to have a need that, that, that goes on forever? We have a question from Bobby Joe, who is interested in what it's like to actually be a financial planner. We have a question from Julian about what software or what tools to use when doing your own planning. Uh, you know, should you do it with paper and a pen or should you, you know, purchase a software package? I'm going to correct an error that I made while correcting a previous error in the 401k show. I've got just a nice self-serving compliment from Derek in Canada that left a voicemail and sounded really good. I'm going to play that for you. That's about a minute. I've got a question from Alejandro who says, what do you do when you can't do anything more about your financial plan right now? I've got a voicemail question about ethical investing. I've got some comments on the 4% Rule podcast. i got a question on how did I keep from smelling like a pig when I was living in my car for two weeks. <laughs> that one will be fun. And then just I'm going to close out with a comment on the impact of hobbies. Some of these questions are going to be in-depth and technical. Some of them are going to be uh, short and a little bit fun, but they're all important. I will make sure on today's show that I go through and put some timestamps in. I don't usually make the time to do that, but today, since I expect this to be a lengthy show, I will make sure that in the show notes, if you're interested in just one of those questions, in the show notes, I will put the timestamp to the question so that you can navigate right to that amount of time. But give it a chance because I think you will enjoy – I think you'll find all of these questions useful. And since I've been out of town, I haven't done one of these Q&A shows for at least – I think it's two to three weeks. Then these are all the questions that have piled up while I've, while I've been gone. And I've done a lot of work as far as just preparing my thoughts. So I think that – I think it will be good. Uh, 
So also, this is going to be the first time I'm playing on the show some of these voicemail questions that I've been receiving, so I am excited about doing that. Thank you for those of you who have left me voicemails. I think that adds something to the show to be able to kind of hear your voice. I think it adds something. If you would like to leave me a voicemail with a question for the show, then go to the site, RadicalPersonalFinance.com. You can go on your phone or on the computer, click the Send Us a Voice Message button, leave me a voicemail. You can feel free to leave me a question, leave me a comment. Uh, I like the question because then I can answer them on these Friday shows, and I'll be happy to have any question you can think of. Uh, I'm also happy to answer questions via email as well, so sometimes uh, a couple of these you'll hear me just reference an email. So let's kick things off with Beth. Beth, here you go. Hi, Joshua. Um, My 14-year-old son has autism, and I need help determining how much money we need to save to make sure he's well taken care of when my husband and I are gone. Um, So far, I have in place a last-to-die survivorship life insurance policy for $250,000 and over $1 million of term life in place for my husband and I combined uh, to carry us through until around age 67. So we feel like he's covered if we both die before the life insurance runs out. But assuming we live past 67, my question is how much money should we have saved to make sure he's well taken care of? Um, I'm calculating his Social Security benefits to be approximately uh, $460. I'm figuring... um, $700 reduced by one-third because he would be living with others who care for him. He has two sisters and loads of cousins who we would like to properly compensate for room, board, and companionship. Uh, We would love to stop traditional 9-to-5 jobs as soon as possible, but really want to make sure all three of us are covered. And by the way, I especially liked your recent episode, 55. Uh, You really got me thinking, and I've recommended um, that show in particular to a couple of friends. Uh, Thanks for all you're doing. So, Beth, thank you for the question. And Beth was actually the first question that I received, so that was exciting. I had set up the, it took me forever to set up the voicemail line, and then uh, once I had it set up, then it was, uh, I don't know, it was a week or two before someone finally called in. So I was excited for that. Thank you, Beth. This is a question that is increasingly important. It seems, now I, I can't quote statistics, I'm not sure about this, but it certainly seems as though we have an increasing number of, of special needs cases, and it's a very important area of financial planning. And there are many uh, planners who really completely specialize in special needs planning. To begin with, I'm going to talk you through this in detail, Beth, and also for the audience. If you don't have someone with special needs, don't tune this out, because you'll find this to be a valuable input on how to do financial planning. But if you do know someone with special needs, this, I think, my goal is to give you a a framework for how to think of. I've got to start with a slight disclaimer, though. I'm not an expert in special needs planning. I have thought about really working at it, and in some ways I'd really like to be. Uh, I would encourage you in your planning to find somebody who's an expert. Uh, Now, I don't know how to tell you how to find somebody who's an expert 
in spe- in financial planning for special needs. Uh, when I thought about doing it, I first <laughs> I first started thinking about it because I thought, well, you know, I can just do this great uh, I can just do this great um, job, and then I can you know sell big life insurance policies, and I'll make lots of money because people need lots of life insurance when they're doing special needs planning. And then I started studying it. And I realized it was far more complicated than I knew. And I don't know anybody in my family or have a re- very close connection to anybody who has special needs, so I don't have that kind of personal uh, connection to it. I have met some planners who do. And let me tell you, this is an incredibly important area of planning. If you are a financial planner, and I believe if you're interested in uh, learning uh, and working in an area where you can have an amazing impact, consider working in special needs planning. I think it would be a great specialty. And if I were to specialize, it would be one area I would seriously consider specializing in again. But I would need to work a lot on on my knowledge of some of the specifics. Uh, I'm simply not competent in the specifics for e- each state and all of the, the, little, the little things that you have to make sure that you get done. I'm competent with the big picture, but not with the details. Uh, and then, as I just mentioned, state-specific means a big deal. So I don't know what state Beth is in, and I'm actually glad I don't know because it, 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 you know, if she were in Florida, then uh, I would I would go where I shouldn't go on the on the radio. So let me encourage you, find somebody in your state who is an expert in this area. Uh, state law matters. It makes a big difference. So I'm going to answer your question in two lines of thinking. I'm going to give you the simple answer, and then I'm also going to give you some of the complicated answers. So in many ways, the answer to your question is very, very simple. It really is. And so let's start with, what do you mean simple? Well, If I go away from the complications of the special needs and I just say, what is actually our problem? Here's the financial planning problem that we have. Basically, for your son, for your 14-year-old son, we need to provide for him an income for his entire expected lifespan. And you didn't tell me that we have any reason to expect that that would be less than than an average person. So I don't know anything about autism that would cause somebody to have a shorter than expected lifespan. So if he's 14 years old, we may be planning from, who knows, to age 70, to age 50, to age 70, to age 90. I don't know. I'm going to basically just plan for an entire lifetime would be my idea. And so essentially what you need to do is provide for him the income that he needs to to take care of his support, which he's not able to provide for himself. I don't know where he is on the autism spectrum. I'm going to assume that he needs full support um, just simply because that would be the the uh, worst-case scenario. But the planning is, is – it, it's no different, the process, just the numbers are different if he's able to provide some of his own support. So let's assume that we need to provide an income for him and provide cash flow uh, for his entire lifetime. Well – what we need to do is we need to figure out what is the cash flow that we need on a monthly basis for the rest of his life, subtract out what is the cash flow that's available on a monthly basis for the rest of his life, and that will leave us with the cash flow that we need to provide for him to cover the, you know, the, the, the lack, the difference, to cover with, with life insurance in, the, in your example. Now, while you and your husband are alive, then clearly you have your income, which you're using to provide for his needs. So now it sounds like that's earned income. You're working. Uh, it may be in the future. It may be investment income. It may be retirement income. It may be pensions or Social Security that you have for yourself, uh, and you have your investment income from your own investment portfolio, whatever that is. So while you're alive, you're providing the income for him. 
And then when you die, you have an asset base that will be available for him. Now, the way that you calculate the amount of life insurance need is always going to be the same, no matter whether it's special needs or not. The only thing that's different with special needs is that the amount of time that you need to provide the income for is a much longer period of time. Because instead of being something like, let's say it as an example, uh, I'm doing life insurance planning for your husband. Um, you're saying, what happens if my husband dies? I'm 10 years from retirement. I need to cover the 10 years of income from retirement. Uh, I'm going to be short $50,000 a year. So because I'm going to be short $50,000 a year for 10 years, then basically I need something like $500,000 of cash and then you factor in whatever the investment return is. For the sake of, of simplicity, let's assume for a moment that we don't need to worry about investment return over those 10 years. We just have that $500,000 of cash. So that's how we calculate it for your husband. And to calculate it for your son, it's no different, except that we have a much longer period of time. We basically have 70 years of time. Uh, you know, That would take him to 84 years old. And I frankly don't know what life expectancy to use. I'm going to use that 70 years just because uh, it makes sense to me, and I think uh, lifespans are increasing. Uh, but I could be completely wrong on that. So all you do is just simply do a needs analysis and say, how much asset, how much of, uh, what's the total amount of assets that we would need to have invested in order to provide him with an income for 70 years? Now, when you get to the point of 70 years, it's far longer than the point where we're going to normally plan to use it up. So we're not going to really do an annuity calculation. We're probably going to plan on just simply what percentage of a portfolio could we provide into perpetuity without invading the principle of the portfolio. Now, what number to use in that situation? It's going to depend on your investment portfolio. It really is. And I don't know anything about your investment portfolio. For the sake of this example, I'm going to use a 3% uh, withdrawal from a portfolio. And I think that 3% would be a fairly decent number to use as a conservative number to say that if we had an investment portfolio that was well invested, that's providing for... The, an income, then we could take a 3% real return and use that on our numbers. So the word real return means 3% net of inflation and net of taxes. That's what I'm going to use it as in this scenario. So our actual annual return from the portfolio may be higher, uh, it, and it, should, it will be higher, but we're going to adjust for, uh, for taxes and for inflation. And so we're going to use a 3% real return. Now, you need to sit with your investment advisor, if you have one, and I would encourage you to, to consider consulting a few. Um, you need to sit with your investment advisor and make sure that you have a portfolio that can reliably provide that return. If you choose to do this yourself, you need to make sure that your portfolio that you've selected for yourself uh, is going to reliably provide that return. You can do this yourself. I, I, I am more comfortable having people talk with professionals because I think there are a lot of, especially in special needs planning, but you can do this yourself. Uh, you can figure out if you're skilled with portfolio management. You decide the type of portfolio that you need. You can set this up. So let's say that your son needs $3,000 per month to provide for his support. I don't you know what the number is. You plug in your own calculations. So if he needs 3000 a month times 12 months, that would be $36,000 a year. So if you take $36,000 a year, and the way you do this calculation is you take um, $36,000, and you divide it by 0 0.03, and that will give you $1,200,000. So if you have a portfolio of $1,200,000, that portfolio could reliably provide for you $3,000 a month of income, essentially into perpetuity. 
So you know that no matter how long he lives, he's going to be taken care of. If you can plan on the $500 a month from Social Security, then that lowers your need to be $2,500 a month. So you take $2,500, multiply that times 12, that equals $30,000, and divide that by 0.03, and you find out that you need a portfolio of $1 million. So that's our target goal, is a portfolio of $1 million. Now here's the trick, and here's where it gets a little bit tricky. The fact is that you're planning for your lifetime and also for his. So this cash flow that we need for your son is in addition to the cash flow that you and your husband would need to provide for your retirement. So you're going to need to budget the money for your retirement. But instead of being able to have the luxury of saying, my goal is to die with $0 of net worth, your actual goal is that you can't die with anything less than a million dollars of net worth, in my example. So you've got to make sure that whatever your retirement plan looks like, that you have a high degree of confidence that when you die, you die with a portfolio of $1 million. Now, I don't know what your expenses are. I don't know what your income is. I don't know what your savings are. And I'm glad I don't because uh, this is not meant to give you a specific answer to your question. I want to talk to you about how to think it through. But when you are doing your financial planning calculations for your retirement, you're figuring out how much of a portfolio you need, you need to make sure that you plan to have a terminal value of a million dollars. And that million dollars uh, will also just need to make sure that's adjusted for inflation, um, the, the $3,000. So that's the, that's the key. Now, there's a bunch of ways that you could do this. For example, you already own a life insurance policy. So you already own a $250,000 second-to-die life insurance policy. For those in the audience who are not familiar with a second-to-die life insurance policy, if you've never heard that, what this policy is, is this is a whole life policy, and it could be either a whole life or a universal life. Let's call it a permanent life insurance policy. Uh, so this is a permanent life insurance policy, and the policy is based upon two lives. The life, the lives of Beth, and the life of the life of Beth, and the life of her husband, and so the policy will pay out upon the second death. So if Beth's husband dies first, there's no policy payment. But then when Beth dies at the second death, then that life insurance policy will pay out the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar benefit. So life insurance is a really useful tool for uh, financial planning for second for. Uh, people with special needs. So for example, if, if the goal was, I need a million dollar life insurance policy, you and your husband could buy a $1 million second to die life insurance policy. And then you would have the confidence of knowing that whenever you die, no matter when, there's always going to be a million dollars of cash available. That million dollars of cash can fund his special needs trust, which we'll talk about in just a minute. That million dollars could go in there, and then that could provide for him an income of a 3% real, uh, real income over time for adjusted for inflation uh, over his lifetime. Now, it's probably unlikely that you need to do the whole thing with life insurance. Uh, the, second to, the, the prices on a second-to-die life insurance policy are pretty good compared to on an individual. Because of the two lifespans, they're a lot easier to afford those premiums. But it's probably unnecessary simply because I'm sure you have other investments and you have other assets. Uh, you probably own a home and you would have other you know, retirement assets. You'd have other 401k assets, things like that. And so the way that you would do this is you would look at those other assets and you would figure out 
how much of these other assets are going to be around. So maybe you have a home that is worth $500,000. And you say, realistically speaking, we're always going to live in this home. So we're going to get we're going to count on that. And conservatively, it's worth $500,000. We're going to be here until we die. And then when we die, we're going to direct the executor of our estate to sell the house and then to put this money into the trust for your son. Well, that gives us $500,000. Many things that could go wrong with that. I'm not going to pick it all apart, but that would give you the $500,000. You may have a substantial investment portfolio, and you may run the projections and say, with a high margin of safety, uh, we're going to be able to save and invest and given a reasonable rate of return on our investments with a high margin of safety. We're going to be well on track for our retirement. And so we think that we're going to, uh, we're going to make sure that we ha- we're going to have at least a couple million bucks left in our, in our investment accounts when we die. We feel pretty good about that. So you could do this entirely with investments. The trick is that it's probably going to be a balance of them because there are many things that can go wrong. The problem with doing it all with life insurance is that the returns on the death benefit of your life insurance policy are probably not going to be as high just simply due to the nature of the life insurance policies as the returns you might be able to get in an investment account, in, a, you know, in your 401k and off of your portfolio. In general, a portfolio of all stocks is going to have a higher average ending balance than is your life insurance policy. But the returns on that stock portfolio are going to be fairly volatile. And depending on your distribution strategy, you may wind up into a time where you know, at your death, that portfolio may be diminished in value. And so the life insurance would be an important component. I would probably do a combination of these. And where that combination would be, I don't know. Uh, depends on your, your financial situation. If your financial situation is tight, you know, you don't have millions of dollars set aside for retirement. Uh, you're working and you're funding for it, but you're going to have to keep on. You know, you're going to be working longer. You're going to be doing other sources of income. Then that's going to affect it. It's going to be very different planning uh, depending on what your actual situation is. So the answer to your question of of how to calculate it is is essentially that simple. And how you structure the portfolio is going to be up to you. You could, um, again, you could do this with a portfolio of stock investments. Maybe you and your husband own a portfolio of rental houses, and you have, you know, say, five rental houses. And you could direct those rental houses to be transferred into a trust. You could designate a trustee who will take care of the property management, and then that portfolio of rental houses could be provide the stream of income for your kids. Uh, you could do something like when you and your husband retire, you could have a million-dollar second-to-die life insurance policy. You could have all of your money coming in in annuity streams, and you know that you have income that will last you as long as you, as long as you live, and you could have a life insurance policy that guarantees for your son's needs. It's up to you. Okay? So that's the big picture. That's the long-term goal. But now we've got to look and say, well, where are we at? And so for the purpose of this uh, analysis, I'm going to assume that you're still in the the building stage. So you're still in the stage of we're working, we're saving money, we're we're figuring out these numbers, and we're trying to fund a portfolio that's big enough to provide for for me and for my husband at our current lifestyle, and we've got to make sure that it ends with a million dollars. So we want to stress test that. We figured out what would be an appropriate lifestyle for you to live in retirement. We figured out how much you're earning, how much you're making, what your rates of return are with just some very simple calculations. It's very simple for your planner to do. And you figure out, are we on track? And if we're on track, what could happen to us that could knock us off track? So you could die early. 
And that's where the life insurance comes in. So that's why you have the term insurance. So in general, term insurance is going to be your best bang for the buck for a temporary life insurance need. So you mentioned that your policies go forward through the age of 64. Well, you need to make sure that you sit down and calculate or have your planner calculate for you how likely is it that you're going to be on track up through the age of 64. So that's where your life insurance comes in. Here's another big risk. You could get disabled. So you need to make sure that you have a plan if you or your husband were to get sick or hurt and not be able to work, but not die. This could be a big deal. Disability derails many, many financial plans. And this could keep you from being able to, uh, keep being able to you know, leave the million-dollar portfolio that you need to leave for your son. Uh, I would encourage you to make sure that if you stress test that. If not, you need to make sure that you have disability income insurance in force. You or your husband could have the normal costs of care for you know individuals without special needs. You or your husband might need um, long-term care uh, help, help with long-term care. You may get older. You may become frail. You may need some help. Well, that could be really challenging. Let's say that your husband uh, were to need some care around the house, and your son also is in need of, of care. That could be very, very burdensome on you, especially if that were to happen when you're 85 years old. So I would recommend considering that and investigating your options for long-term care. You may purchase some long-term care insurance. You may set aside an additional fund for that. You may talk with your daughters, and they may agree that we're willing to provide the care so that if you get in that situation, we're willing to take the steps necessary to uh, you know, to make sure that both you, our parents, and also your, uh, their brother is taken care of. You could have higher-than-expected health costs in retirement. Most retirees have higher-than-expected health costs, so you need to make sure that you have adequate health insurance. Uh, you could simply lose your jobs, so that's where you would need to make sure that you have savings accounts set aside. You could get sued, uh, and so if you get sued and you were to lose a lawsuit, that could be devastating. So you need to make sure that you do prudent planning. Your house could burn down, so you plan for that, etc. So the key is all those all those scenarios that I just said are the normal scenarios that we would stress test in any financial plan. It's just that the stakes are a little bit higher for you. And because you have to wind up with that ending balance of the million dollars, the costs are going to be a little bit higher for you. The costs of you have to save enough that you have the extra million dollars when some people could spend that down, uh, or you have to cover the costs of the life insurance policy throughout your retirement, and that's a monthly cost, so that has to be covered with additional assets. But in many ways, it's no different than what other people do. That's just the normal financial planning process. We figure those numbers out, and then we come back and stress test it. Just we have higher stakes. Okay. I hope that helps as far as how to calculate the amount of insurance. The key summary point that I would make is I would focus on making sure that you have an amount of insurance that will be in force without your needing to uh, invade the principal. And so I would look at something like uh, a 3% distribution off the portfolio as long as that portfolio is invested wisely in such a way that it's allocated in such a way that that's a reasonable expectation. Okay. Now, a couple quick things on, you know, to get a little bit complicated and give you some specific things to think about. You need to be, think carefully about how you structure your life insurance. So I think for right now, I would make sure, if I were in your shoes, I'd make sure that you have a lot of term insurance. Uh, I don't know if a million is a lot or a little in your situation. If that were your only asset that you had at a million bucks, 
um, if that were the only, excuse me, if he didn't have substantial savings in addition to that, I would feel a little bit, me personally, if I were had the responsibility of a, of a son with special needs, I'd feel like that weren't quite enough. Uh, life, term life insurance is so relatively cheap in the grand scheme of things. I might have a little bit more. Uh, but if you have other assets, that could be a perfectly reasonable amount. Make sure that your term insurance policies are convertible policies, meaning and convertible means that you can change them from term insurance policy to policies to whole life insurance policies without requiring uh, medical exams. So what could be devastating is if you were to find that uh, you, know, you and your husband are working, working, doing well, but the reality is you're not going to be in a position to be able to retire at the age of 60. And rather, it looks like based upon your s- situation, you're going to be working till maybe you're 70 or your mid-70s because you got to make sure that your son is cared for. Well, it could be devastating if your life insurance were to, if you were counting on that last 10 years of earnings to fund the account for your son, and then you were to be diagnosed with something that would affect your ability to get life insurance. So if your policies would take you to 64, that's probably enough time. But I would want to make sure that those, I would go back and check to make sure those policies are convertible for a long period of time. And I would consider, as time goes on, in case you were to become uninsurable, i just consider extending that out, maybe uh, making sure that some of your policies could go for a longer period of time. Uh, you could also accomplish that with some sort of minimally funded universal life insurance policy. Too complicated to explain on the podcast, but that could be an option. Most universal life insurance policies uh, blow up before the end of life, but that could give you an option with your insurance planner. That could give you an option where if you funded it at a minimal level, it could be slightly more expensive than term insurance, and you know that it's going to run out, um, maybe it's 70 or something like that. You know that it's going to ultimately blow up, so it's l- it's less costly than, excuse me, it's, it's, it's not as costly as whole life insurance, but but it's more costly than term insurance, but it gives you the option of continuing it for a longer period of time by increasing premium payments. So you would want to think that through. Make sure that whatever companies you're using for your life insurance have good permanent life insurance products. Many companies, their, their permanent life insurance products are so inordinately expensive, and they're just – I would never want to own them. And so the problem is that those are the companies that usually have the cheapest term insurance policies. So make sure that whatever company you have your term insurance policies with, that that's a company that has reasonably cost-effective permanent products in case you needed it. So in case you needed to convert your and make and I would I would check on something like this. If you were to go to your company and you were to say, "Listen, my husband and I have just found out that uh, that we don't we're not going, you know, each of us was diagnosed, my husband was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and diabetes and he's going to die early and I was just diagnosed with cancer. We have these term insurance policies that are going to expire." Well, if you have a company that has good permanent insurance products, you could should be able to take that death benefit that's already issued on the term insurance and turn that into uh, joint ins- insurability on a second-to-die life policy. And so that would put you in a situation if you expected not to die within the period of the term, but to die before you were able to, uh, to get um, – but before you were able to save the money that you needed so that you were self-insured, that would be a good option. So I would be careful about what companies I have my term insurance with. And if it costs me an extra 40 bucks a month to have them with a good, a good company that has uh, quality uh, permanent products instead of term products, I would consider that. 
Um, make sure that you have a competent life insurance agent. Don't buy the stuff online. Don't try to do this kind of life insurance planning with you know term term dot com or whatever the the latest um, term insurance advertising company is online. There's a place for that. That works great for the 30 year old couple that you know knows exactly what they need and the guy who writes the financial blog. That doesn't work well for someone in your situation. Make sure that your life insurance advisor. I'd say make sure they're a CLU. Uh, if they're not a CLU, find a new one. Um, or or at least they can prove to you that they know what they're doing and that they've thought this through from a coherent uh, perspective because the, the stakes are simply too high. Um, ho- <laughs> I'm scared that I got too deep in the weeds there. I hope that stuff made sense. Uh, if you, you may need to listen to it a couple of times. I know I got kind of tricky there on life insurance planning, but that stuff is important. Uh, and again, that would be important, especially if you don't have millions of dollars of extra, which I'd, I'd be surprised if you did. Uh, You've probably spent uh, quite a bit of money over the years, that many an expense that many people don't have, and making sure that your son has the best education and the best care that possible. So that, at least in some of the special needs families that I have worked with, I've seen that has been a major challenge. Make sure you get your special needs trust set up properly. Uh, just for the audience who may not be familiar with it, in special needs planning. Uh, you want to make sure that you establish something called a special needs trust, uh, or actually more accurately called, it's actually more accurately called a supplemental needs trust. Depends on where you are in the world. But basically, simplifying completely, what this is, this is a trust that has certain provisions written into it that they'll allow your son to receive income as long as that income does not affect his eligibility for government benefits. So when you're doing planning for special needs uh cases, it, the government benefits that you receive, whether that's from Social Security or government health benefits, they may be local, they may be national, are often a major source of, of income for your situation. And so you want to make sure that you know if your son were to, to inherit a million dollars directly, that may disqualify him for the government benefits. So that's what why you would establish a special needs trust. Make sure that that's done properly. Make sure that you have sought out uh, competent help on that. It's too important to to not have competent help. Uh, make sure that all of your documents are in order. So the documents for the guardianship, if that's going to be passed to your daughters, make sure that if your daughters are minors currently, make sure that you have uh, established another guardian, somebody that you trust, a family friend, until they're able to serve. Make sure that they understand what they're getting into. You will probably want to make sure that they have some education on the financial aspects of planning for special needs. Uh, so, you know, if your daughter were the guardian but but didn't understand, you know, you know, let's say she's ditzy and just doesn't, I don't care about money, I don't pay any attention to that stuff, that would be a problem. She needs to make sure that she understands the basics to make sure that, you know, if you have an investment advisor, is that advisor doing a good job managing the portfolio? If you don't have an investment advisor, is she competent to manage the portfolio? Those are the types of things that you want to make sure that you think through. Uh, Make sure that every beneficiary document is in proper order. It's too important to make sure that that that, that trust is properly funded, and you want to make sure that there's not some, you know, your husband's 401k lists, uh, for example. Let's say your husband's 401k, you know, he set it up 10 years ago uh, before you knew that your son had autism and before you had any exposure to any of this aspect of financial planning. And so he sets this up. You're the beneficiary, and his contingent beneficiary is children, uh, you know, all my children. Well, then you guys are out on date night. You die. 
And then the money is distributed to A, your minor children, and then B, your legally, uh, your son who's disabled, he's legally incompetent uh, from the scenario that you dis- described to me. That would be a disaster, uh, especially because he's going to inherit it directly and now it's not in the trust. So make sure that your beneficiaries are in proper order. I would encourage you, you probably have, get books and read them. The key in this scenario is I think that you, I would, I think that you need a good advisor. Um, but you also need to be educated yourself because you're not going to know who's a good advisor and who's not if you're not educated yourself. Uh, I want to do some shows on this topic in the future and bring on some people who practice in this area to talk it through with specifics. I haven't found the person yet. There's one attorney here in Florida that I've considered bringing on the show, and I may do that. Uh, It's on my topics list, so I will do more shows on that in the future. One final thing. And I mentioned this just for your benefit, just in case, and also for the benefit of the audience, of the other audience. I am sure that you have spent an incredible amount of time researching options for how his help. And so I bet you have already researched this. Recently, over the last six months, I first came across the work of the of Glenn Doman, a man named Glenn Doman. With, he has an institute. He's dead now. He died, I think, a year ago. But his children have continued his work with an institute called the Inve- Institutes for the Advancement of Human Potential. And I found them randomly through some weird YouTube surfing, uh, and I came across their work with, um, with uh, children, with you know, teaching ba- um, tiny children, is what they call babies, their lingo, teaching uh, babies uh, to read, teaching babies uh, to swim, teaching babies to do math, teaching babies kind of all of these certain things. And I became fascinated with it and and read a couple of his books. He's written like six books on on working with kids, but he started by working with brain-injured children, or excuse me, brain-injured adults, and then moved into working with brain-injured children. But if you haven't, I'll put one quick link on in the show notes to information that he has as far as um, hurt kids who have autism. And I've watched some of his videos where he talks about the programs that he's done with uh, autism and some of the successes that they've had in the work that they've done. And uh, so I'm sure you've done those things. I'm not trying, don't, don't take this as offensive as I, of course I have. I'm just saying, I thought it was pretty cool. I don't know much about autism from the perspective of what it can be done, but it seems from reading his philosophy, and he worked in this area for 40, 50 years, he didn't view much of a difference between the source of the brain injury. He just simply viewed it as an injured brain, a hurt, a hurt brain, a hurt kid that needed some help. And so his, he's developed a, you know, quite a, an extensive amount of, of resources to help uh, enhance things. And I read some of his testimonials of, of children that he's worked with with autism. Pretty amazing. So I just passed that along in case there may be somebody else in the audience who would be interested in uh, resources like that. And I'm sure if you were to go into the autism boards and things like that, that there would be much, much more information. So Beth, I hope that helps. Thank you for being the inaugural caller into the show. <laughs> it was uh, it was really great to have your question. And for the rest of you, I hope that that helped. Um, I know I gave a lot of information quickly there, but it's really a unique planning opportunity. And you can see how, even what I shared, how everything works together. Uh, hopefully, that's what I hope when the way that I answer these questions. Next question is from is via email, and this question is from Bobby Joe. And Bobby Joe sent me an email. I'm going to cover just a couple of uh, her points and uh, as a way, because I think this would be something that will be interesting to more of the audience. So 
here's a question. He says, hi, Joshua. I'm a distance trail runner and enjoy listening to your show during my long runs. I'm so glad I found you, and thanks for keeping me company. I am currently a legal assistant and have been recru- recruited by an acquaintance uh, who is also a CFP who owns her own company to become a CFP and work at her advisory firm. It's all still tentative and pending, and I've been trying to do some research about what exactly CFPs do and if it's something I'd be interested in before taking the plunge and signing up for courses. I was hoping you could help point me in some worthy directions. There doesn't seem to be a really clear-cut career path for brand-new financial planners, and it seems easy to get lost in the wealth, (laughs) pun intended, of information. Number one, I'm thinking uh, that the DePaul online course would be a good fit. All online, it finishes in about 11 months for around $7,000. Seems like a reasonable investment. Do you have an opinion on whether getting a master's versus the regular CFP is better or worse? So I'm going to answer these instead of going through all the questions and coming back. I'm going to do them one by one. So Bobby Joe, and also for the audience, I, in my opinion, the master's degree and the CFP are very, very different. In many ways, if you're going to work as a financial advisor or financial planner, the certified financial planner designation is and is quickly becoming, it's not technically this way, but it's quickly becoming in the industry almost a minimum standard. Uh, and it is very different, however, than working through a master's degree. The sort of the CFP course, there are what is it? I don't remember the number of courses that are required. You're required to take some courses and pass an examination, and it largely is the is going to be a minimum a minimum standard. The master's degree I would view as advanced education on top of that, uh, and it has its place. But yes, if you're getting started, don't you don't need to worry about a master's degree. You need to start with the uh, CFP exam. Now, one thing that you need to be aware of is that even though you may start working and you may start you know, studying and working, the CFP designation requires you to have at least three years of experience and also a bachelor's degree before you can begin using the designation. So you will need to work your way through the courses, but you, you cannot actually become a CFP certificate, which they get mad if you call yourself a CFP. You can't become a CFP professional or a CFP certificate without at least three years of experience. So this is the kind of thing that you really should be doing this concurrently with other education uh, instead of uh, with other, excuse me, with your other work as you're working and getting experience in the industry instead of trying to do it in advance so then you can go and get experience in the industry. One of those weird things, those are the rules as they are. Maybe they'll change in the future, but that's the deal. Now, as far as the DePaul online course, I don't have a clue about it. And so 11 months for seven grand, eh, that's fine, I'm sure. Uh, I looked real quick at their website. Sounds fine. I don't have any problem with it. I did all of my courses with the American College simply because my firm paid for them all. And so my company paid 100% for all of my American College education. And I didn't come out of pocket for a dime. That was a really, really nice benefit of it. it was a really, really nice benefit, and I, so that's why I chose the American College. I haven't studied with any of the other colleges. You can go directly to the American College, and you can see their tuition on their on their website for the coursework. So if any of you are interested in financial planning education, you can do that. I had a good experience there. It was cheaper than 7000 bucks. I also did my CFP review course with uh, a, a man named Ken Zahn, and he also does education all online. At K, uh, his website is kenzahn z a h n dot com. He does a great job, and uh, his review course was awesome. I learned more in four days than 
it, than I felt like I'd ever uh, I'd ever learned. And so I have the books that he uses for his actual courses, and those books are excellent. So I would encourage you to consider his as well. The advantage to doing it with the American College is that the education that you have there would also count toward your other designations. So designations like the CLU and the CHFC and the maybe even the Castle designation, but there is some overlap. So if there were a choice between them, I would choose the American College just so that you could continue on with them and not have to retake their classes. They may have a transfer credit, but I'm not sure about that. Now, continuing with uh, education, I would say that the biggest thing that you need to have a question on is how you're actually going to learn the job. Let's go into question number two. You said, my friend said I would start in, quote, operations, until I were certified. What does this mean, and is it the appropriate place to start while I'm in school? So I'll just describe, and if any of you guys are financial advisors, financial planners, um, feel free to disagree with me. I'll just describe my industry experience, and feel free to come by the show notes and comment on your, your own, and you can tell me I'm, you know, what I missed, what I'm crazy about. It doesn't bother me a bit to help Bobby Joe out with your experience. Basically, I've come up with, a, there are a few different ways to get started in financial planning. The it, and it depends very much on how you actually on how you actually uh, it depends on how you actually like what your practice is going to be structured like so your your additional questions and i 'm going to bring all of these together your additional questions are what does a day in the life of a CFP look like? what are some various career paths for CFPs to take? It seems like there are areas for sales not interested more client based approaches or question mark. And it says, any other advice or resources I should check out to get a better idea of what being a financial planner means so I can decide if it's a good fit. So I'm going to bring these all together into one question, just give you some thoughts. There are many ways to get started in the financial planning industry, but you have to understand them and understand the different models to really figure out what's going to work for you. So the harsh reality of starting as a, as a financial planner is in the beginning you know very little. Even if you've gone through, and if you're one of the very few, and I think there'll be many more in the future, but if you're one of the few who has an undergraduate degree in financial planning, even knowledge that's required for an undergraduate degree in financial planning is going to be uh, not that much. Even if you're a CFP certificate, it's really not that much because most of it is academic. And the major skills of financial planning are not necessarily academic, but rather experiential. The major skills of working with clients are not academic. And this is one of the biggest problems. I don't know of any way to gain those skills other than to get experience. And there are many people who think, okay, if I just have, if I just have the knowledge, that the knowledge is, is, uh, is going to make a difference. Here's the thing. The knowledge is all available for free on the Internet. I mean, here I am giving away the knowledge every day. So you've got to look and say, what, is my actual, what, is my, what are my actual skills? And the great skills of a financial planner have little to do with uh, tax law, have little to do with how investments work, and have everything to do with how you work with clients. And so I would like people to, to quickly see, do I like working with clients? That's be my personal preference. The 
the arrangement that you described is common in the industry. So what is very common is you may have a, a financial advisor, and this financial advisor has worked hard. They built up a book, a book of business. That would be the industry lingo, which means that you are managing assets. So you have an investment, uh, you know, an investment uh, investment accounts that you're managing, which you know may maybe ten million dollars, maybe fifty million dollars, maybe a hundred million dollars. If you are on, you know, starting to get towards the upper levels of success, let's say you're managing fifty million bucks. So you got fifty million bucks of client assets that you're managing. You have a couple hundred clients. Now, this financial advisor, it's hard to do. There's a lot of work to be done. So this financial advisor is going to need staff. So usually the structure you'll see, you may see a financial advisor, and then you may see um, some unlicensed staff. So this staff would be may, might be secretarial staff. It may be client communication staff, prepping, answering client questions, things like that. And this financial advisor will need licensed staff people. So they'll hire an associate financial advisor. And this would be a licensed person. So you've gone out, you've got your, your – um, you don't need a CFP to get started in the financial advice business. You need a series uh, – to pass your series exams. So you need a series 7 and a 63 or a 65 or a 66, depending on what you get. And so you're going to start this work in the uh, working as staff. So when you're working as staff, you're working with this financial advisor. You may be meeting with their clients. You may be placing a trade for them. You may be servicing them in some capacity. And then what's expected is that as an associate advisor, you're going to go out and you're going to build up your own client base. And so what's common is it's uncommon for people to charge uh, planning fees directly for planning. And what's more common is that the, com- the compensation comes from either uh, commissions earned on the sale of investments or on fees earned on the management of investments uh, or on the commissions earned from the sale of insurance. So this is where most of your compensation is going to come from. So the challenge with being an associate financial advisor is you have to be in the business, and you're learning in the business. You're getting to meet with clients. You're getting to have a, a chance to do it. But, you, but in order to be paid, to go past the salary that the financial advisor is paying you, you're going to need to go on and build up your own sales skills. And so you're going to need to go on and build up your own uh, insurance sales, your own investment sales, and to build up your portfolio that you're managing and, and have your fees off of that. So that's, that's how the business works. The challenge is that you're an employee. You're not really a business owner. You are an employee of the advanced advisor. There are many great advisors who will bring a young advisor on. You serve that advisor in exchange for the salary. That allows you to get started, and you can build your business. And then that advisor may sell you part of their book. So this is often common, is that, is that the, the advisor may, as part of your comp package, they may sell you part of their book, uh, or you may just be able to build up your own book. It takes time, especially if you're focused on managing investments, it takes time to really build up uh, competency to be able to, to sell investment accounts, basically, and sell your services and managing investments. All of, by the way, as, as I tell you this information, all of the, uh, I can just hear half the audience cringing in disgust at the idea of, of paying fees to financial advisors of the, uh, the bogleheads are, are cringing. Uh, but this is how the industry works. Uh, now, how else can, can you do it? It takes time to build up investment assets. If you don't have any knowledge, if you're, if you're working as a legal assistant, you probably know nothing about investing. Or what you do know is what you've gained from, like me, when I started, just from some personal finance books and some things like that. Uh, nothing wrong with starting there, but you don't know much. So it's going to be a little bit hard if you're young to walk up to someone and say, here, listen, here's why you really should hire me. You really should hire me to... Um, to uh, manage your $400,000 portfolio. That's a challenging sale to make, especially if you're, if you're new. 
So that's that's one model. Another model is to work and start with a primary focus on insurance. And so I'm going to give you three models, and then you'll have to figure out what works in, in your world. So the second model would be to start with a primary focus on insurance. The nice thing about insurance is there are two advantages. Well, there are three advantages to insurance that I can think of off the top of my head. Number one is the market of people that actually need insurance is much larger than the market of people who have substantial assets to invest if you're getting your fees being paid to you off of of um, off of assets. So the, your actual like potential client base is much larger. Number two, the way insurance works, so let's say that you're selling life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance. Number two is the way that insurance works is that your commissions are paid to you up front. So instead of like the fees on an investment portfolio, let's say that you're managing $400,000 of investments, and let's say that you are billing a 1% fee. Well, that's $4,000 of gross income to your practice, and that $4,000 is going to be billed quarterly. So you're going to get 1000 bucks the first quarter, but oh, by the way, I'll give you some more industry lingo. That thousand bucks is going to do what's good. It's going to go through the grid, is what it's called. Uh, it's going to go through the grid, and you're going to uh, only receive a portion of that. And so, what going through the grid means is that your broker dealer retains a portion of that um, of those fees to compensate them, and you get a balance of it. So maybe it's fifty fifty. Depends on the firm. Maybe it's ninety ten ten. Just depends on the firm. So. That's the the challenge. So it's tough. If it if it's really tough for you to build a four hundred thousand dollar portfolio, so a to bring in a four hundred thousand dollar portfolio to bill a one percent fee on that, you don't have a lot of knowledge. You don't have a lot to offer. It's a tough thing to get going. Uh, whereas if somebody needs needs a life insurance policy, let's say that you're talking with Beth, you know, who I just did a life insurance plan for for you, and Beth needs a life insurance policy, and she needs another million bucks of term insurance for her, and let's say her premiums are for easy math, let's just say her premiums are uh, 100 bucks a month, so 1200 a year. And then her husband also needs a million bucks of term insurance, and that's 1200 a year. So then the commissions on life insurance, they vary from companies, but anywhere from 50 to 120% of the first-year premium. So let's say that you're working with a company, maybe one of the cheap-term companies, where their rates are 90% of the first-year premium. So let's just uh, I can't do 90% math in my head, so let's just say 1200 So you make 1000 bucks on the sale of the life insurance policy to Beth to fund, you know, to fund her special needs trust with a 20-year term policy. So that's a really good way for you to get started uh, and be able to, to eat while you're studying and while you're learning and while you're building knowledge. Uh, so that's what I did, is when I started, I started with Northwestern Mutual, and I didn't want to go and work for somebody. I wanted to work for myself, and I wanted to learn how to be a financial advisor. I didn't know how to be a financial advisor, so I wanted to learn how to be a financial advisor. And with that knowledge then, I wanted to take it and go on and be able to uh, build, but I needed to eat. Like, how, how, how do you make money? I, I knew I couldn't, I didn't have anything to offer to somebody, say, Joshua, why should I choose you to manage my $500,000? You know, you're 23 years old, you don't have a clue what you're doing. I don't know. You probably shouldn't, would have been my answer. But I could do life insurance planning, and I could go read a book on special needs planning, and I could go sit down with Beth, and I could help her solve her problem. And she needs to buy life insurance. There's no non-commission life insurance companies, so why wouldn't she choose to buy it from me? And I'll make 2000 bucks on her 20-year term for her and her husband, and that allows me to, 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 to eat. 
And here's the cool thing about that approach, is that the process of helping somebody do simple life insurance planning is no different than the process of helping somebody plan for their $150 million estate and how to avoid estate taxes. It's the same process. Now, there's a, there's a major difference in knowledge, but there's the same process. So I chose to go and work with a life insurance company. I chose Northwestern Mutual. I chose to go work with a life insurance company because I could. that would allow me to sell insurance. I could sell life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, and health insurance. And my clients didn't have to put their trust in me to deliver on something like they did with, you know, with investment management, they, they only simply had to put their trust in the insurance company. And the insurance company was going to be around, and then I had to help them find the solution, understand their needs, and then help them understand how I designed the solution that would fit their needs, and I got paid my commission. Okay? So I, I liked that better because that put me in the position, instead of having to go and work 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week for somebody else, and then somehow prospect for clients on my, you know, at night, I said, I want to run my own business. And so I ran my own business right from day one, focused mainly on insurance planning, studied, 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 learned, 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 took exams, took exams, took exams, then started bringing in investment clients, and that was kind of how I built my practice up. Now, uh, that's the second model, the, the major model. Now, the third mod- model that is currently existing in the uh, financial planning business is the model of the prospect of hourly fees, okay? Hourly fees or project fees. So some fees that are not connected to the management of an investment account and no commissions. So this is the third model. So if you hear people say and talk about go and consult a fee-based planner or a fee-only planner, and I'll ignore that for right now explaining that because this show is already going to go long. But if you say, okay, how do I charge fees? Well, to charge financial planning fees, there are a few models that you could take. You can bill them for them on an hourly basis. So you could say, listen, my, my planning fees are you know, $150 an hour or $400 an hour, whatever your fee is, and then clients can come. They can consult you on, on the basis of an hourly fee. Or you can charge on a project basis. So I'm going to put together a retirement plan for you. I'm going to bill you $1,600 for this retirement plan. Uh, Or you can charge on some other basis. So whether that's the basis of an annual retainer, this is a model that many planners are doing, or a monthly retainer is a newer model that some some people are doing. Uh, You can charge with some kind of fees. Now, the problem with fees is and fees only is you have a problem of getting people to pay the fees because you have a marketing problem. So um, if, let's, say, let's say that you're going to do planning for an hourly fee. This is the simplest, this is the simplest um, thing to understand. So if you're going to bill $150 an hour and you're going to do planning on the basis of an hourly fee, then how many clients do you need to make a living wage? So let's assume you've got a 33% expense ratio for your rent, for your office, for your staff, for, you know, go and take your exams and get your CFP and all that stuff. So let's say you're going to profit 100 bucks an hour. Well, if you need to make, say, 4000 bucks a month at 100 bucks an hour, that's a total of 40 billable hours that you need to bill every month in order for you to make 4000 to cover your, your personal expenses. So if you're going to bill for 40 hours, the question is how many people do you need to reach to be able to uh, pay you for uh, for services, a lot. Okay, to bill forty hours means you got to do a lot of prospecting, or you've got to be in a situation where somebody has 
um, where somebody has information, where somebody has a steady flow of clients, a steady flow of leads through some sort of lead generation system flowing in your door where you'll be able to help them out. Um, that would be, uh, that would be, that, then that's the problem with doing the hourly fees. So to give you some guidance, okay, all of these models can work. The biggest thing that I would be concerned about if I were going to work with somebody, and, and so if I were going to work with a friend of yours, so you said, hey, my friend, she has, a, she has a firm. The biggest concern I would have is, is this a training firm or is this a doing firm? And there are different kinds of firms. Some firms will be excellent at training you, teaching you, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to go out and develop clients. Here's where you go to learn the information. Uh, some practitioners are just really great practitioners. And it's likely if your friend is the kind of person who is, she's running her own shop, she has maybe a couple of staff people that are supporting her, maybe she's in business with another planner, something like that. She might be an awesome financial planner. And she may have a stable of clients, a, a client base that just loves her, that she does an amazing job for. And she may be a terrible trainer. There are people who are able to build their own firms, um, you know, who can go to take college classes, they can go learn financial planning, they can open the doors on their own firm, they have enough experience with running business that they can, you know, they can sign the lease on their office, they can do something else. Um, there are people who can run their own firms. Uh, but and who can succeed right from the beginning without the need to ever work with anybody else. Uh, but those, the number of people that are able to do that in this business are, I would say, are very few and far between. And many people who are running their own firms are not good at training you. So you need to do an accurate assessment of, do I need training? What I would encourage you to do was, is that I would encourage you to go out and interview the, here's the nasty – or the not, it's not a nasty secret. Here's the secret to the financial planning business. The most difficult thing that financial planning firms have to do is to recruit new people to work within them. So whether this is traditional insurance companies, traditional investment companies, traditional wirehouses, um, the most challenging thing to do is to is to find people that are going to be working for them. And the, the, the firms that are in the business of training people, it's easy to get an interview. So what I would do is I would go and interview with a minimum of you know, a dozen, 10, or I mean, a minimum of a dozen different firms. And I would interview with um, some of the big uh, insurance companies. So I would interview with, uh, you know, I've, I had a great experience at Northwestern Mutual, New York Life, Guardian, MetLife, Prudential, things like that. I would interview with the wirehouses. I would interview with uh, you know Merrill Lynch, Morgan Stanley, Smith Barney, um, Meriprise, uh, Lincoln. I would interview with some of these companies. I would find some local small financial planning boutique firms. So you'll see you know wherever you are. Um, uh, I don't know where you are. What the you know West Palm Beach planners or Palm Beach financial advisors would be where I am, and I would just go in and I would ask them for an interview. Uh, I would interview. I would look online. I would go in forums. I would try to figure out where are different things, and I would figure out what's the best fit for you. I was not a good fit for the wirehouses because I didn't like their model. Uh, I didn't want to do it, and I didn't think that I, it would work for me. I had a great experience with the insurance companies, and I learned a lot. And I felt like I was able to stay true to my ethics and my integrity, and I was able to work on my own terms, which was important to me. And I felt like I had the the training background that I needed. I had the support that I needed. I had the training. I had the influence put into me 
But I'll tell you this, my office was unique. And there are other offices in the same company that did not have that culture. So even within one company, you know, you may go to one AXA advisor's company and you may go to another AXA advisor, excuse me, one AXA office, and you may go to another AXA office, and you may find that they are a dramatically different culture. So there is no one answer to it that I'm aware of that's going to uh, that's going to solve your problem. But by going out and interviewing and going out and um, by going out and interviewing, you would find you, you'll you'll figure out kind of what is working for you. Two, three other quick comments. Number one is also check out um, an organization that I'm involved in, and I'm actually a member of it, called the XY Planning Network. And so the XY Planning Network is actually a group of us who are fairly young who've recognized this problem and the the problem of access. And you're and, and if it sounds like it's hard for a young person to get started, that's because it is. And if you want to, you know, if you want to be a fee-only planner or something like that, if that's important to you, the problem is how do you get started? So check out XY Planning Network. And I really don't think it's a good place for people to start with no industry experience. I really think you need to go work somewhere and get some industry experience. Uh, I mean, you can't even get into, you can't even get listed on the front page of XY unless you, you know, you're a CFP certificate. And you're not going to be a CFP certificate without three years of experience. So, you know, you can't start there. You got to go get trained somewhere. And that training may be working as an associate FA, financial advisor, with your friend, helping her with her client base, and you'll get enough industry exposure to see if you like it. Uh, I do want to tell you just one – I do want to comment on – well, the, so that's thing one. Also check out XY Planning Network. Number two, check out um, – go and read everything that Michael Kitsis writes on his blog at Kitsis, K-I-T-C-E-S-D com. He writes primarily to a financial advisor audience, and he will go through some of the theoretical constructs and problems of the financial planning business. And he'll go through things like, how are you going to do your marketing? You know, I don't see any way. If you want to do hourly planning, go research the Garrett Planning Network. That's what they do. Um, I don't see any way that a new young person could ever have any hope of getting started um, as an hourly financial planner with no other source of income. I don't see any way to do it. Uh, unless you were working and you had a tax practice, like let's say that you're a CPA and you have a tax practice and you want to expand into financial planning, maybe that would work, but I just don't see any way that, that it could be started from scratch. Not if you're planning on that as your primary source of income. If you have other, another job and you're doing it part-time, maybe. Um, but I would I would direct you in the in the direction of his information, and then uh, uh, I forgot to say, uh, and I'm getting to the third thing uh, in a minute. But I forgot to say also check out some of the banks. So you might start with one of the banks. You might start with you know J.P. Morgan Chase. You might start there. Uh, I know there are several people who have emailed me who listen to the show who work as advisors in the banks. And once you get into the business and you start to get a f- little bit of familiarity with the business, you'll start to understand kind of the lay of the landscape as far as companies and firms and practice structures and things like that. It's really hard from the outside to get it. So that's why I've tried to give you the the lay of the land. Here would be the biggest thing I would caution you on. You said specifically here, it seems like there are areas for sales, not interested, more client-based approaches, or dot, 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 question mark. I'm going to challenge you on that line of thinking. I am a salesperson. And I am a darn good salesperson. I'm very proud to be a salesperson. I'm also a very ethical salesperson, and I'm a man of integrity. And those two things are not conflicting. Now, there are a lot of schmoes in our business that have sold people inappropriate products, inappropriate stuff, and I'm not a fan of that. But sales and client-based approaches are not antithetical. 
They're not, they're not opposite. They're not opposite in any way. And the sale of products is not in any way, in my opinion, is not in any way unethical. I have many times gone to seek out somebody when I'm going to go buy a product, and I want the person to receive a commission from the sale of a product simply because they did a good job. I've specifically gone and sought out people, people who have been solicited online or some things. I've specifically gone and said, I want to make sure that you get the commission on this because I value the input that, that, that you've given to me. If you have the mindset that you do not want to be a salesperson, I don't see any way that the financial planning business is for you because the financial planning business is fundamentally 100% through and through sales. Now, it's not always the sale of product. So it's not always the sale of insurance or it's not always the sale of investments, but it's always the sale. I'm selling to you right now on this show. I'm selling information. I'm selling ideas. I'm selling inspiration. I'm selling myself. I'm trying to sell you on why you might want to consider uh, you might want to consider listening to me. So I'm selling you right now, but I'm doing it in a very honest and straightforward way. I'm going to guess that you are probably not yet rich. I do not know a rich person who does not value sales because every rich person got there by valuing sales. You want to know why all companies fail? Because they don't sell enough. If the company's selling enough, the company's not going to fail. If your company is selling like crazy and your expenses are out of whack, you might be able to figure out how to cut your expenses and continue the company. If your company is selling like crazy and you hit legal battles or you hit problems, things like that, as long as sales are good and you've got cash flow, you're good. So the number one role of everyone in the company is sales. And I would encourage you, even as a legal assistant, your job is sales. Sales and selling is one of the most highly compensated, highly sought-after skill sets you could possibly have. The attorneys in your firm, the ones who make the most money are the best salespeople. If you are an attorney, you're, again, you're working in a legal environment. If you're an attorney and you can't sell your services and you can't sell your advice and you can't sell why somebody should choose to work with your firm, you're going to be stuck in a back office 60 hours a week pushing paper because they can hire that all day long out of law school, some guy with too much in student debt to be able to go and take a risk on something. And so he's stuck at one of the big account law firms, and this guy can write the papers. But the guy or gal who can sell is out there bringing a business. And every single one of the partners in your firm, their compensation is tied to how much business they brought in. And that's as it should be. Because the mark of effective sales is the mark of the value that you give. Do you think that somebody who you're going to manage a million-dollar portfolio, do you think that person doesn't have other prospects? Do you think they don't know that they can call Vanguard and get their portfolio managed for 15 basis points and toss it in an index fund? Do you think that they don't know that they could call any, you know, if you're at uh, Merrill Lynch and they're good, do you think they don't know they can call J.P. Morgan Chase and, and they'll have an appointment with 15 advisors in an instant? They know. So you've got to provide service commensurate with what you're earning. Do you think if you're managing money, if you're, uh, that the client, um, the, if you're managing money and, and you're billing, you know, on a million bucks, you're billing $10,000 of annual fees that your client doesn't get that statement and look at it and say, why am I paying you this money? You've got to sell. Now, what you, again, even if you're doing, I don't know what a client, I don't know what a non-client based approach is, but if you're selling somebody a, a life insurance policy, uh, or let's say you're selling someone hourly planning, do you think that if you don't sell them on why they should spend hundreds of dollars with you, that you're not going to have the sale? Like, you've got to sell. So I would encourage you, 
study what good sales is. And I'll tell you, at the top of every industry are the best salespeople, and the best salespeople are always the most client-focused people. They're always the most client-centered people. And I'll tell you a secret I learned. I learned that the better a job I did for the client, the more I would sell. And I learned to take my time with every single client. And there were people who kind of pushed past because they didn't see they could take the sale. I learned if I took my time and actually tried to help somebody and focused exclusively on the client and ignored the commission, that every single time that client would send me dozens of other clients. And I promise you, you go and you interview with a dozen people and you will find at every firm the most effective, most um, the, the most highly compensated financial advisors are always the ones that are um, the best salespeople. And they're always the ones that are the most client-centric and the most client-focused. So I uh, apologize. It's just it's, it's a big passion for me. I wish, you know, frankly, I wish that we sold sales. I, I wish we, we taught sales in high school. That would be a much, um, <laughs> a much more valuable um, course of study than um, it'd be a much more valuable course of study than would be uh, many of the things that we teach because ethical sales is the key to business success. And there, sh- there is not, there, I was going to say there shouldn't be, if, if you find any, any difference between your ability to serve your client and sales, you're, at the, you're in the wrong business. You better be careful because you're going to be shut down because your clients are going to be so unhappy with you. It'll come out and you're going to be destroyed. And, and I've, there are, man, there's some, there's some scumburgers in the financial business and they go from firm to firm because their firm gets shut down and, and there are a few people that I can't stand in this business. Um, but I'm telling you, they're not successful and they're not successful in the long term uh, as big producers unless they are the best salespeople. And the best salespeople are the people that are the most filled with integrity. <laughs> I hope that helps. <laughs> All right. Um, hour 12 minutes. We're going to go. Uh, if you are done with the show for today, just hit pause. It'll still be here for you tomorrow. But I want to make sure that I, I make up for lost time with not doing some of these these uh, these questions. Next, we have a voicemail question from Julian. Hi, Josh. This is Julian calling from Chicago, Illinois. What would you recommend for someone who wanted to do their own financial planning at home? Other than, of course, listening to all your shows. Would you recommend software, pen and paper, Excel, a financial calculator, all of the above. How would someone begin doing this? And how could they continually update this on their own? I love the show, and I look forward to hearing the rest of your podcasts. Julian, great question. Thank you for the question. This one's tough for me, so I'll answer it specifically. I would start with a pen and a paper. I would start with a financial calculator, and I'd start with Excel. Uh, there are a lot of software options, and if you go online, you'll find many, many calculators. Many of them are useful, and I think the calculators are useful. Uh, I have not found any friendly, consumer-friendly financial planning software. There is a now. I haven't also haven't done a sur- complete survey of the marketplace. Uh, that's on my list of things to do. But the problem with most of the software op- options, and I don't know, there's there's dozens of them targeted towards financial planners. You get Money Guide Pro, you got eMoney, you got I didn't look up a list of them, but those are just two that are popular off the top of my head. The problem with the financial planning software is the software is built with a lot of underlying assumptions, and those assumptions are very valuable, but you need to be familiar with them. 
And so the skill for a good planner is to, is to know, wait a second, is this passing the sniff test? Uh, I know that many times when I was uh, with Northwestern, uh, we had a proprietary software program that was exclusive to our company. It was not, uh, it's not available publicly. It was different than many other plans. But in the beginning, I would go and I would create a plan, and I was more likely to get the plan wrong than uh, I was to actually get it right. And so if you, you get the plan wrong, and it takes a while till you figure out how to spot the wrong plans. And I don't see any way that an, that an individual could actually get past the learning curve of the software programs, at least with the ones that exist, in a, in a timely enough manner to work with their themselves. So I take your question as, I take your question as for an individual. I think it's much simpler. And I know this sounds self-serving, but I think it's much simpler to learn how to just run a financial calculator, do simple plans, grasp them conceptually, and hire a, hire a planner for a couple you know hire a couple hours of a planner's time. And it'll save the time and learning curve on most of the software packages. Now, I, I there are some consumer-friendly packages that help. For example. Um, What's a good example? FireCalc. Okay, so FireCalc, if you're going to run your, if you want to run a Monte Carlo analysis, FireCalc.com is going to help you do that. But the number of people listening that are going to know what Monte Carlo analysis is and be able to be competent with it, like the, you, you got to understand what's actually going on under the hood. So I think it's better just to stick with big picture rules uh, and think about concepts rather than to be worry too much about running, uh, running, um, you know, software. Uh, if I now I plan at some point, it's on my list. I don't know when I can actually get the uh, the the bandwidth to be able to do this, but I plan to go out and try to bring you guys a complete survey of the marketplace. So, it's the kind of thing I'd love to do with a series of YouTube videos. I'd love to do some reviews and instead of some silly review of, you know, personal capital or some consumer facing thing, I'd love to bring you some reviews of some of the software and see if any of it could be applied to an individual. But frankly, just learning how to run a financial calculator, you can solve most of the most of the things that you need. The reality is that as complicated as I can make things sound sometimes, the numbers are pretty simple. You know, if you let's say you're gonna do a simple life insurance calculation for yourself. Uh, you know, let's say you calculate you need nine hundred and twenty grand of life insurance. Just buy a million bucks. I mean, it's a difference of three dollars a month. Who cares? Um, just get your million bucks and overshoot it a little bit. Most people are not going to be sitting there, and and most of the the real financial planning stuff is not going to uh, it's not going to make a that big a difference if you're not so. I feel like I've answered that going in circles, but I would say start with a pen and a paper. Start with a financial calculator. By the way, you don't need to go out and buy one. If you can get one online, I'll link to one that I've used a lot of times online. I use the HP 12C um, simply because I thought it'd be cool if I used the same thing my dad did. <laughs> but I have you one online that I use sometimes if I'm at a computer and I want to show a screen to a client on a on a on a virtual meeting, something like that. And then also you can download an app for your phone. So if you are doing stuff for yourself, in reality the actual using of a financial planning calculator, all you need to know for most calculations is NIPV payment and future value. And if you know how to do those, then you're good to go. Someday also when I can build the someday when I can build the bandwidth, I want to do a series of YouTube videos showing people how to actually do it for themselves, explain how to do it. I don't think I can do it in audio in a way that's compelling uh, or complete. I think it's the kind of thing I need to do in video with a screen capture and talk through so you can do it. 
I also think we should train financial planners to do it uh, in on paper and pen. And I'm young, and I'm all, all into technology. But you know, there's a reason why you learn how what two plus two is, and eight times eight is, and then later you get introduced to the calculator. And what happens is, I, is that today, what I've seen is a lot of young advisors they don't know how to do things manually. And so, because you don't know how to do things manually, you can't spot the mistakes in a financial plan. And if you can't spot the mistakes in the financial plan, and you can't figure it out, then the software is is useless. I, and, and, the, and the thing is that the software, as I've tried to point out, there are assumptions inherent in everything. Financial planning as a science, you can be precise, but you're built on so many assumptions that if those assumptions change, then your whole plan falls apart. So it's much less about actually uh, what the right answer is. Well, you know, here's the right answer for this situation, and much more about understanding the assumptions and playing within those assumptions. And there are many fewer right answers in financial planning than there are right ranges, so to speak. So that's what I would, how I would answer. I would start with pen and a paper and a financial calculator, and um, with that, and then also I would move on to a spreadsheet. You know, some simple spreadsheets, uh, and then I would just simply, if I were an individual, I would just simply. The people who are do-it-yourselfers, I want to equip you as do-it-yourselfers. You probably don't – you already can go and do it yourself. But the, for the majority of people, it's simpler just to buy, a, um, a, buy, a, uh, buy an hour or two of, of somebody's time and pay them, and they'll take care of you – know, they'll, they'll, run, they'll run your analysis for you. They'll stress test your stuff for you. Uh, I'll give you one example. I can't use – there's a major difference between uh, TurboTax or, you know, tax – what's the other one from uh, – anyway, TurboTax. We'll pick on them and the software that accountants use. I can't use the software that accountants use. I was trying to solve some tax stuff the other day and uh, – and like I was trying to do something and it's not important what. And I signed up for a free trial version of one of the uh, – of one of the – uh, pro versions of the tax planning prep, and I tried to go in and put my put my figures in because I was trying to do a calculation that was uh, in you know, thirty years out, something like that, and I couldn't figure out how to make the software work. It just it didn't work. So I can use TurboTax, but my ability to actually do good planning with TurboTax is not very much. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's some stuff, but I don't ever with TurboTax. The problem is you're just putting stuff in. You're not actually understanding what's going on. So if I were, so that's how. I, if if it were me trying to do taxes, I would start by trying to do them by hand. And once I've done them by hand, work through the worksheets. That's going to take some time, but that's going to teach me more about how the tax return actually works. Then I would go to TurboTax, and I would just go to TurboTax and use that to help me, or whatever the equivalent of it is, um, and use that to. Uh, help me run the calculations a little bit easier. But now that I understand what's going on underneath the hood, I can use it a little bit better, and I can spy the problems. And then for really good tax planning, I'd call a, a competent advisor. And it's going to be a lot cheaper for me to, for most of us, not for everyone, it's going to be a lot cheaper for most of us to actually sit down and just buy an hour of somebody's time or two hours of somebody's time and say, here's my situation uh, with as much detail as possible. You know, can you see something that I'm missing? And then you can take that information and go back and do it yourself. You don't necessarily have to hire the person to do it for you, but you need the planning. So, uh, but if I were, a, you know, a professional, and this is how I view, you know, financial planning software. If I were a professional accountant, a CPA, then I would 
would be able to do everything far faster with my with the same professional program that I signed up for and couldn't make heads or tails of. And so a lot of times when I'm helping, you know, new advisors or something in the past with a with a plan, I mean, I'm flying around the software, but this, it didn't happen that way when I was as a beginner. Beginner, so I think software gets in the way a lot of times. Not to say there's not a lot of value in the calculators. Not to say there's a lot, a lot of not a lot of value in maybe a simpler program. I talk with my brother sometimes, who's a who's a web programmer, uh, about you know trying to figure out if he could create something better. But we'll see when when time comes. Next going to correct an error that is important. And this is something that I got wrong as a mistake. So in show 55, which Beth so kindly complimented me on, uh, and in fact, Derek was about to compliment me on, so let me play Derek's compliment. Hey, Joshua, how are you doing? It's Derek from Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada. I'm a regular podcast listener, and I just finished listening to Radical Personal Finance number 55 with John, your 35-year-old almost millionaire who's looking at his early retirement. I just wanted to say I really enjoyed the way you worked through the various scenarios and laid it all out. I actually took five pages of notes as I was going through, and uh, it certainly gives you a lot to think about. I'm uh, not quite in John's situation, but working close towards that and also looking at uh, an early retirement situation for myself. So uh, thanks again for the good work. Hopefully... uh, John learned something uh, because I know I certainly did, and I'm sure a lot of your other podcast listeners did as well. Keep up the great work. I'll keep listening, and uh, we'll listen to you next time. Thanks again. Very cool, Derek. Thank you so much for the comment. It's cool to have uh, listeners in Canada, uh, or as I like to bug my my best friend who's Canadian uh, in Canada. <laughs> That's my word for uh, for it. Um, so I actually thank you. I felt really good about that show, and I really enjoyed answering that that show. Uh, but I actually made a mistake. And so in that show, I talked about four hundred one ks, and uh, I talked about uh, making a distribution from the four hundred one k. And this is at the end in a series of equally uh, period, series of equal periodic payments under the seventy two t rules to avoid the age fifty nine and a half problem. And if you're a new listener and this is your first show, uh, I'm sorry if that was. <laughs> too much too fast so i i went back and and a listener commented on that show and reminded me that you can make a distribution if you separate from service after the age of 55 you can make a distribution from a 401k plan and not have to pay the 10 percent early distribution penalty on that so in show 60 i actually went back and corrected my error and then last week, I was listening to something, and I learned something, and I found out that I screwed something up in correcting my own error. <laughs> so I need to go back and add a little uh, note to that in uh, show 60 about this, but I wanted to make sure that you who are listening and already listened to that show get a chance to hear it. But also, I, th- I think it'll be interesting and important, but also I just wanted to point it out as how frequently, you know, how easy it is for me to get stuff wrong. And there are so many little rules about um, planning. There's so so many little rules that you can get wrong that I really don't think it's possible for anyone to get it right all the time. So when I put put this little disclaimer in that I recorded and put in, and I say, please correct me, I mean that. I need you uh, as an audience to correct me. And find if you find something I'm wrong in, I need that input. So in this case, I, I discovered it myself, but I need that input. So just for your knowledge, very quickly, 
The 401k, if you are going to utilize that one exception, uh, and there are a few exceptions, which I'll go through in a future show, but this one exception that we talked about under uh, Section 72T of the Internal Revenue Code, if you are going to use that exception to uh, take your distribution from your account uh, after 55 but before 59 and a half, you must be leaving the job that you're taking the 401k from and you must be leaving the job after 55 and then starting your distribution. So there was a court case on this. Uh, uh, was it a court case or – yeah, it was a tax court opinion. So from September 28, 2011, and I will link to it in the show notes. I've got the tax court opinion here. It was Gail Marie Watson, who was the petitioner versus the comp- commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. So Watson v. Commissioner. And this is a – uh, this is not a uh, what it was an opinion that was issued by the tax court um, on this subject, and so what happened is that this lady, uh, Miss Watson, she left her job at the age of I think it was fifty two. Uh, I'm just going to go close enough. You go read it if you're interested. I had the the material facts are correct enough. So she left her job something at like the age of fifty two, and then sure, okay. So so respondent contends. Uh, so she separated from service with her employer at the age of 53. And then at the age after reaching age 55, she wished to make a distribution from her 401k. And at that point in time, she made the distribution from the 401k, but she did not uh, include the 10% penalty tax. And what the court, the tax court found is that the payment made from the plan, after, you know, that you have to be at least 55 after you separate from service. And so here is one quote from the case that was actually quoting a previous piece of legislation. It says, in all cases, the exception applies only if the participant has attained age 55 on or before before separation from service. Thus, for example, the exception does not apply to a participant who separates from service at age 52 and, pursuant to the early retirement provisions of the plan, begins receiving benefits at or after age 55. So I'm reading directly from the tax court opinion. This is important because one of the things that I thought I had thought up in my head, which would be wrong, I was wrong about it, is I said, well, you know, that might be one reason to leave your money in a 401k instead of rolling it over into an IRA with the idea that let's say that you are an early retiree and you retire at 40 and you leave the money in the 401k so that you can access it at 55 instead of waiting till 59 and a half. I was flat out wrong. So my idea completely um, didn't go, and I want to make sure you're aware, and that is my error. So I have to go back, and <laughs> I do a show trying to uh, correct an error, and I find out that my actual correction is an error itself. <laughs> Hopefully you find that uh, interesting, and I find it humbling. Next, question from Alejandro, uh, and this was part of an email thread that he had emailed me, and I'm going to read his, inco- his question because I think it's a useful, uh, a useful question, and I have some thoughts that I want to help him with, and he didn't specifically ask for this to be included as a Friday Q&A show, but I want to include it. So Alejandro emailed me, and as part of an email exchange, he said, I recently heard an archived episode where you and the person you interviewed agreed that increasing income was usually the first step in the road to wealth. I'm currently in a PhD program, and I don't really have the opportunity to increase my income. My wife already works full-time and may actually need to go back to school to meet certification requirements, more expenses. 
Increasing our income substantially is almost without a doubt simply impossible for the next two years. We have some savings and emergency reserve cash, but we also have a lot of debt, maybe $20,000 if you include student loans. We try to keep our expenses low by monitoring cash flow and eliminating anything that is unnecessary. What else can we do? I realize we will hit a point where we are doing everything we can. Maybe we are there already. Maybe not. Aside from couponing, I heard that episode today, I'm not sure what else there is left for us to do except, except plan what and when our next move is. What are your thoughts? So I thought this was an interesting question, and I do have some thoughts. And uh, I do have some thoughts, and I hope you'll find them useful. I think there absolutely is a time when, you, when you've hit all you can do. You know, sometimes all you can do is all you can do, and it sounds silly to say it, but really is. Uh, you know, if you are doing all of the right things at something and you're on track but you can't do any more, that's fine. And in that case, just keep doing what you're doing. You know, you very well may have a plan and simply be working your way through that plan. Uh, and you might actually be going backward financially. Uh, let me give you an example. People do this all the time when they start a business. So many times when you start a business, you're going to invest in that business, especially the bigger the business, the more likely it is that you're going to invest. And it's probably going to take time for there to be uh, cash flow from the business. And you're going to invest a lot of money before you expect to receive a payoff. That's not bad. You know, if Bobby Joe from the earlier question were to go and uh, become a financial planner, it's likely that her income would go down from being a legal assistant to working if she were going to take a job as a producer. It's likely that her income would go down. And that's not bad because the potential income of her working as a, an excellent financial advisor is far higher than it would be as a legal assistant. So you may be in that, uh, in that situation with school. And, and if you have a plan, and it sounds like you do, you're fine. Just go for it. Uh, when you're getting a PhD, you are voluntarily sacrificing years of earnings that you could have in order to get that PhD. This is what medical students do. If you are going to go through 10 years of medical school, specialties, residencies, etc., you are sacrificing what you could be earning if you went out into, you know, into another job for those 10 years. So you're going to be behind at the beginning, and that's fine. And it may be that this is the stage in life that you're at. Uh, if so, cool. Fine. Now, I would, however, give you a few additional ideas. So one thing that you could really focus on doing is you can probably focus on developing and practicing skills of living cheaply. So what occurred to me when I was thinking through your question is it occurred to me an example from a website that uh, I used to read. Uh, I still read there every now and then. I, haven't, I hadn't been there in months until I went to find uh, the article I wanted to find called Cash Cow Couple. And kind of a funny name, but I like it. And the cash cow couple. And this is a young couple. I uh, can't remember the names. Uh, it's Vanessa, and I think it's Jacob is the, the husband's name. And they started writing this financial blog for themselves when they got married. So they're newlyweds. They've been married for fewer than two years. And they started writing this financial blog. From what I understand from their writing, Jacob is actually in a PhD program out in Texas, actually in a PhD in financial planning program. So, and they blog about finance. Now, what's cool about their, their blog and what made me think of it is they don't spend much money. So he's pretty hardcore with they're, – they're pretty hardcore with their frugality, and they write on their blog a lot about saving money. Uh, so you know they uh, they bought a mobile home. They figured out that would be the cheapest thing way for them to live out in Texas. Uh, I think he rides the bus or or she rides the bus, and they have a Saturn, like an old Saturn that they drive, and uh, they hypermile the car to get maximum uh, amount of uh, of uh, 
uh, mileage from it. Uh, they they save on groceries with, with all these coupon hacks. They hack. They do their travel with credit card hacks. And he posts posted their expenses for their first year of marriage. And it's kind of amazing. Their total expenses for their first year of marriage were ten thousand three hundred and thirty six dollars for this young couple, which is probably in a similar situation to you. I can't remember for sure, but I think she she has a job and he's in a PhD program. So their annual cost for rent and utilities six hundred sixty bucks. They rented for a couple of months and they had utilities. Utilities, no mortgage payments. They're self-insured. No homeowners insurance. Mobile home taxes, thirty bucks. Uh, let's see, annually. Land cost was twenty-two hundred bucks for the year. Water and sewer, three hundred and ten bucks for the year. Four hundred and ten bucks per the year for electricity. Ninety dollars for natural gas. A hundred bucks for trash service. One hundred seventy-one bucks for household maintenance. Uh, 1400 bucks on transportation, which includes um, his Ph.D. program pays for unlimited bus usage, $312 for car insurance, $100 for registration and taxes, $500 on gasoline. So Jacob rides the bus. Vanessa has a short commute, so $500 for the year on gasoline, $405 on traveling for three different voc- vacations, and then some other miscellaneous living expenses, a total of $2,640 for the year for groceries, $624 for the year for restaurants, and a few more, some gifts and some miscellaneous expenses. It's $10,336 for a couple of two who are in a similar situation. Now, if this is your first time, you the listener, uh, or you Alejandro, if this is you the first time you know, hearing people who are just amazingly frugal... Um, don't get upset before you get upset about like well, that's a crazy lifestyle. Consider how they frame it. Okay, for, so for them in their worldview, this is not deprivation. This is not living a deprived lifestyle. It's fun for them. They enjoy the challenge of figuring out how to get all of the modern standard of living for an inexpensive price. And um, and by the way, Alejandro, if this is uh, your first time. Like with this stuff, I don't know if you and your wife talk about it, but I'd be be careful before you tell her we're going to live on ten thousand dollars, ten thousand three hundred thirty six dollars a year. She might not react well. You might want to work into that a little bit. Uh, a lot of times that causes problems in, in in couples. But the cool thing is, is that they're living a lifestyle and they learn how to do it with skills on ten thousand. Uh, let's call it you know eleven thousand dollars a year. I think that's pretty awesome. I'm pretty impressed by that. I, I don't have those skills as much as they do. I'd like to have them, but I don't have them, and I think it's pretty cool. So what you could do is you could consider, are there some skills that I could learn? Uh, go read their blog and just do some of what they do. You're going to have a different situation. I know you're in South Florida, which is more expensive uh, than Texas, where they are, but you might have a similar situation. So remember that you can be learning skills of saving money and living cheaply all through that point in time. Now, the cool thing about what they're actually doing is they're actually probably making some extra money. And so I don't know how popular this blog is. They've got um, at least a few thousand subscribers and a few thousand Facebook fans. That tells me that it's starting to grow. And they're basically doing what most personal finance bloggers are doing now. They're doing, look look at that, 5,500 Facebook likes. So this is a a decent-sized blog, I guess, from this point in time. They're doing, looks like, primarily uh, affiliate income. So they've got some credit card uh, affiliates. They've got... Uh, personal capital review, so that'll be an affiliate link. They've got Motif Investing Review, so that'll be an affiliate link. Republic Wireless, affiliate link. Uh, Betterment uh, Options House. So he's got some reviews on here, and he's getting affiliate commission. So I assume he's making some extra money from that. So you might consider, is there some way that you could replicate that? Now, it may be that your PhD program is in something completely unrelated to finance, but there may be some way for you to do something similar. Uh, 
and build a little bit of extra money with with something like that. He has he's going through a PhD in financial planning and he's writing about uh, personal finance and I'm sure he's making I don't know uh, some money with his affiliate income. So that there might be something like that that you could that you could do. Now one other question is. Do you, are you doing your PhD program in the most efficient way? Are you paying for it, or, you, or do you have a fellowship where they're sponsoring it? You know, I thought of him as an example. Uh, he's clearly doing a fellowship uh, where they're paying him uh, for they're paying for his PhD program while he goes through and teaches some classes and things like that. So, are you paying for the PhD program? Or are you doing a fellowship? Uh, are you early enough that if you don't have a fellowship that you could do it? Uh, that would be one thing that that you could consider. If you need income but you don't have time, it's an interesting puzzle. And if you ask yourself the question, I bet you could come up with some answers. So I thought to myself and I said, what would I do for income if I didn't have any time to do some kind of a side hustle, is, is the popular word for it now. Uh, and the best thought I had was, you know, could you, rent, could you take on roommates? Uh, could you, uh, you know, could you rent a three-bedroom apartment for, you know, let's see, you're in South Florida, so could you rent a three-bedroom apartment for twenty four hundred a month and rent out each of the bedrooms for eight hundred a month, and that would cut your own expenses cheaper than you and your wife living in a studio apartment, or could you? I, I would be slow to do this, but could you buy a house? Could you buy a big house and rent it, rent parts out, or could you just rent out some of your some of your rooms on Airbnb? I know some people that pay for their whole rent, uh, renting out a couple extra rooms on Airbnb. So, are you in a place where you would be a popular Airbnb host? Uh, so that that's the type of thing that you could use an asset that you already have. Maybe it's an apartment, maybe it's a house, maybe something like that, and you could make extra money with only a little extra time subleasing, all that stuff, you know, check your lease. But conceptually, that's an, an option. What I would really spend a lot of time thinking about is, am I really investing in a way that has nothing to do with money? It may be that you need three more years to finish your PhD program. And in those next three years, you're just going to let this 20000 bucks of debt just sit there. Uh, refinance it if you can. Defer the student loans if you can. Re- keep, keep the rate to the lowest rate. But maybe you can't make any progress on that. But are you investing into things that will make you more money in the future? So when you're done with your PhD, will you have an established social network that will open up for you a really nice job? Don't forget that. Don't graduate with a PhD and then sit there and say, "Oh, here's what you know." I'm just going to go and start sending out resumes. Make sure that you've got people bidding on you by the time you finish your dissertation. Uh, that's doable, but you got to do it. You got to go out and you got to put in the work. It takes work and planning to actually make that happen. Uh, are you maintaining a blog in your field that's going to build your reputation? If you don't, if you're doing a PhD and if you don't have a website that is in your um, in your field that you're writing to, maybe you're doing book reviews, maybe you're discussing your personal process, maybe you're just talking about what you're learning as you're doing it. I would submit to you that that's short sighted, and that you should be doing that. Um, you know. Is your dissertation on a subject that's actually interesting and important? You know, so maybe you're you're working on your dissertation topic. Uh, are you are you really picking something that's going to be valuable, and are you pouring everything into it and are you giving it full effort so it can actually be something useful? Can you actually do some groundbreaking research, or did you just pick a topic that said, "Well, I'm going to do this topic and it's, I'm sort of interested in it," and this is a topic that's going to disappear into the the <laughs> what are those websites? I don't remember what which one. The the vault of academic 
academic papers where you go into these academic websites and there are millions of papers in there that no one ever reads. Uh, consider it. Now, I'm not, I'm not judging you on one is right or wrong. I'm just trying to give you ideas about how I would think about it. And I would think a little bit uh, uniquely about the opportunity that you have on uh, the opportunity that you have to invest that. Uh, I would think about it. Uh, I think about it that way. Uh, and I'd make sure that if you're going to put the time into doing a dissertation, make sure it's something that could get you that's interesting to people. Do some groundbreaking research. It'll take you more effort, but it'll actually be worth it. And it'll help to build that social network. Maybe you do the kind of thing where it's important enough that you get on, um, you're on TV somewhere being interviewed because of the groundbreaking research that you've done. So consider that. If your wife is working, question, is she working at the highest paying job? Uh, most people don't. Uh, you know, the most inefficient area in most people's lives is their job. Uh, that most of us, we find someplace, we pick it, we like it, and we don't do anything. Now, I'm cool with that. That's totally fine. If that's what you want to do, great. But there are dramatic options to every three years or so going and uh, upgrading your job, upgrading your skills, upgrading your job. And you can, you can take some lateral moves, and sometimes it's far easier when you're making sixty grand to go and interview for the $100,000 job than it is to get promoted within the same company from the $60,000 job to the $100,000 job. Is there a way that you mentioned she needs more education? So maybe she's an, I don't know, she might be an educator, it sounds like to me from that. Is there a way she can work somewhere where they're going to pay for the cost of the classes? You know, I finished, uh, finished a master's degree just, you know, myself. I didn't pay for any of those classes. Uh, my, my firm did. And I'm, I really valued that. Uh, but that would have, I would have had to earn a lot of extra money in order for me to do that. So can she go work at a college somewhere part-time? Uh, I've done planning for co- families who worked for, both of them worked for a college so that they could live in subsidized on-campus housing, even with children, and get tuition rebates. Uh, that may be a very efficient way to accomplish your goals. So those are some ideas that I had for you. I hope that maybe something in there might spark something. I would just simply say, t- in, in summary, don't worry about it if you're in a stage of life where you are, uh, where you're spending more than you're making. Um, that's called investments. But make sure that if you're investing in something like your education, make sure that you're investing wisely and you're doing everything that you can to make it valuable. Hope that helps. All right, next, Dave. Hi, Joshua. I've been enjoying the podcast. I was hoping you'd do a primer on ethical investing. I've reached a point where the basics are squared away and I want to start having my money work for me. And while the idea of a Vanguard TSMX seems appealing and just keep my hands off of it, I've looked at a lot of the organizations in their portfolio and there's a few that I don't want to support with my money because they violate my values. I've also looked at SRIs and um, more often than not, they may have screens in place that are really not concerns of mine or they may still invest in organizations that I have issues with. So I was kind of hoping if you could provide a starting point for how I can identify SRIs that are not only aligned with my values as closely as reasonable, but also uh, do perform. Um, Any other thing I haven't thought of, I'd very much appreciate it. So thanks so much, and I'm looking forward to hearing your answer. Good question, Dave, and I thank you for asking me. If, uh, By the way, if you are new to the concept of socially responsible investing, when Dave references SRI, that is what he means, social resp- socially responsible investing. And so basically, in summary, how I would say is this is basically how can I – 
combine my investment strategy with the purpose of return, returning a you know return on capital with something that's going to do also some social good. So how can I marry earning investment returns from something that's going to do social good? Now, I've got two uh, two ways I'm going to answer the question, Dave, is uh, that I've looked at some of these SRIs. I got you used to get pitched on them from the 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 uh, wholesalers uh, about some of the funds and I'm interested in them. I, I'm inter- very interested in this area of finance. Uh, I'm I'm pretty ignorant however on like the the different funds, so I'm not going to spend much time on those funds. I would point you toward um uh, the Wikipedia article on socially responsible investing, they actually have a decent chart in it that will show the different funds that they've listed out of uh, various funds, and they've listed out the different uh, topics, the different, uh, you know, what would these be called? The different, um, excuse me, I don't know what to call these uh, areas. You know, whether it's is it do we do we invest in alcohol? Do we invest in tobacco? That kind of thing. They've invested in the different screens. There we go. That would be the word for it. Screens. So. I would point you to the Wikipedia article on socially responsible investing. Linked it in the show notes for you. The problem with that I face with this, I'm going to have some experts on. I've been looking for somebody uh, who works in this area. It may be a wholesaler. It may be somebody who's in the business who who I can talk through this area because it's a growing area and there's a lot of interest in this area. My problem is I've got some weird stuff that I'm (laughs) – that to me is, is how do you def- you know how do you define socially responsible? You even mentioned in your question you said you know there's some some things that I'm not really concerned about that other people are. So I just give you an example uh, in this Wikipedia chart. There, here are the screens that they talk about: alcohol, tobacco, gambling, defense or weapons, animal testing, products or services, environment, human rights, labor relations, employment or equality community investment and proxy voting. So here would be, you know, these scenarios that they've got listed out for how to do social screens. But the screens that bother me, most of them aren't even on there. You know, a couple of them are and a couple of them fit, but the things that really bother me are pretty non-mainstream. And I actually don't get how some people, you know, many people are bothered by some of the things that they list here because I'm not bothered by them. Uh, but I'm very – and before I give you some ideas of some of the things that I'm bothered by, I'll, I'll just mention this is something that really affects me more and more now. I never used to have a problem with some of this stuff. I've always uh, invested through mutual funds in the past myself, and I've never worried too much about what the companies that my mutual funds uh, owned. I never worried too much about what they were. Uh, but lately, over the last about a year, this bothers me more and more. I haven't done anything about it myself yet. I haven't sold my funds, but I'm, I think about it, and I'm moving in that direction uh, just because I find that this is a bigger deal to me than, than not. But I'll give you an example. Here are some of the things that bother me. So uh, something that doesn't appear on here anywhere on this list is financial. Uh, so I just finished when I was on my trip. I just finished uh, the book. I listened to the audio book called The Big Short by Michael Lewis, and this is about the – the 2008 
uh, financial meltdown. I'm in the process of reading the official financial crisis inquiry report. It's sitting here on my desk, and this is the official uh, government report that was issued by the the, the team that, that was commissioned to investigate the financial crisis of 2008, uh, which it's interest. The, the Big Short, by the way, is an awesome book. This financial crisis inquiry report book is interesting, but it is horrible. These government reports are awful to read through. Uh, not my kind of deal. But uh, it's valuable, and I want to have it. But I'm not okay, you know. Af- especially after listening to the Big Short, I'm simply not okay with profiting from some of these big investment banks. You know, I don't want Goldman Sachs in my portfolio. I really don't. Um, and I'm not okay with making money on AIG. Uh, you know, are all the people that work there bad? No, the people that 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 committed, you know, did these. Literally, I would say criminal, could be criminal actions, but are they all bad people? No. I I have a friend of mine who's the former head of Goldman Sachs. Um, I have a friend who uh, I've met the former head of Lehman Brothers, and they're not bad guys, but I don't want to profit from some of the stuff that they're doing. Uh, You know, not very many people went to jail, and I'm not really okay with that because there was some crazy stuff going on. Uh, another example, uh, banks. Okay? I'm not okay with the fact that the, you know, the big five banks basically have a cartel in place, and I'm not okay with how they treat their customers. I think some of the work that they do and some of the stuff that they do is nuts. It's, it's just it's not right, and it should be changed. And so I don't want to – but the thing is that they're continuing their own interests, and they're trying to, they're trying to continue their own interests, and they're trying to advance – that for their their stockholders, and so they're going to keep doing it. But I don't want I don't want anything to do with that. I'll give you I'll read you one quote here from this is from the introduction to the the financial crisis inquiry report. It says uh, from two thousand by two thousand and five, the ten largest U.S. commercial banks banks held fifty five percent of the industry's assets, more than double the level held in nineteen ninety. On the eve of the crisis in 2006, financial sector profits constituted 27% of all corporate profits in the United States, up from 15% in 1980. That's not okay, like in my opinion. It's not okay for those 10 banks to, to do that. Now, do I want to go and just say, you got to get rid of this? No, but I don't want to own them. I don't want to profit from it. I want to I wanna encourage the smaller local banks. And the problem is there's this cycle of... of they call it crony capitalism, where there's not a chance that those banks are going to give up their right, their their hold on the market, and there's not a chance that the government's going to do anything about it. So we're stuck in this, and you're left with the the, the standpoint of, am I going to profit from what Bank of America does? I don't want to profit from it. Um, you know, I'm not okay with some of the work of the major media companies. You know, I don't like what they some of what they do. I support their right to to produce their content. I don't want to stop them from doing it, but I don't really, you know, I've got some pretty strong moral convictions about some of the filth they put out and I don't I don't want to make money from it. Um I'm really interested in, you know, green energy. Uh, I'm really interested in sustainable um development and sustainable energy because it just makes sense to me. But I don't want to invest in green energy if investing in green energy means destroying people's rights and freedoms. You know, I don't, I don't have any interest in the government stepping in to redistribute people's tax dollars to benefit some company versus another. You know, all this global warming crap has so much politics involved with it, and so we're going to do a carbon tax, and we're going to have all this, all this stuff. And there's some really simple, really effective solutions that can make a dramatic difference in, uh, you know, in 
the health of the, the, the global ecosystem that could be pursued, but there's no money in that. So, you know, we just pursue the crap we can tax. Um, I, I'm not okay with owning some of the big bio companies. I'm really not cool with what they do. Uh, I don't want to own you know, Tyson chicken stock uh, you know, and drive past the, the, the hell holes that they call a chicken house. You know, I was driving across the country, and I passed a bunch of these things uh, on my way up to Pennsylvania. And I just I don't want to make money from that. I mean, those things are hell holes. Go look at how they treat their, their animals. I mean, that, I don't want to own it. And if I can figure out, uh, try to cut back on the stuff, even buying it and supporting it with my dollars, uh, I can't find any good local suppliers of, of pastured poultry. So I, I'm kind of stuck, and it's, it bothers me. I don't want to own it. I don't want to – I don't want to give them my money, and I don't want to make any money off of that business. Uh, I don't want to give any of my money to some of these, you know, I drive past the feedlots. Um, I mean, that is completely inhumane, the way we treat these cows. I don't want to own that, the companies that make money off that. Um, you know, I'll give you the, here's the worst example of how conflicted I get uh, about it. I, I don't want to profit money from the global war machine and from the war economy. You know, increasingly as days go by, I'm I'm becoming increasingly convinced that war is you know, to borrow the terms of who was that guy, the general who wrote the book back in, um, I think it was like the 1950s. Um, I'm going to Google it. The guy who wrote the book, War is a Racket. It was General... General Major... Okay, United States Marine Corps Major General, two-time Medal of Honor recipient, Smedley Butler. And so he wrote... he. Gavitz had a speech in a booklet called War is a Racket. And so in the 1930s, uh, after he retired from the Marine Corps, he went around and did that. I mean, war is a racket. Uh, you know, props, war props up our economy. And, you know, the problem is you actually start studying history beyond the, the textbook you were given in eighth grade. And yes, I passed AP U.S. history and no, no one ever told me. I got a five on the history exam and AP U.S. history and no one ever told me any of the history until I actually went and started looking it up. You know, you find that that basically in every single war, the major people that get rich off of the total destruction of human life are the guys that are making the guns and the tanks and the ships. You know, so what do I do with this? Here, here's the conflict that I face. Personally, I would love it if every single company in the United States, and I, I don't know about the world, I, I assume the world too, but I would love it if some of the gun companies would just sell millions more weapons. Um, th- th- this and they make lots of money doing it. Uh, that really appeals to me. And I, fe- you know, I fiercely support each and every individual, no matter where in the world they are, their right to defend themselves from their aggressors. Uh, frankly, I would prefer it to fly on an airline where every passenger on the airline were required to have a Colt 45 on their hip. Now, is it ever going to happen? Not a chance. But I would prefer to fly on that airplane. I feel a lot safer there than I do when I'm out on the streets and in, in you know, Pennsylvania or Philadelphia or Chicago or wherever, New York City. I was in Washington, D.C. Um, you know, not a gun allowed forever. You know, I, I would much rather be on that because I would feel a lot safer if I knew that the good people had the guns instead of the good people not doing that. So from that perspective, so let's say that I have that philosophical perspective. And so now I would love it maybe to own some shares of, of Colt Defense Inc. or Sturm Ruger and Company as a Ruger, Ruger Firearms. Um, but what do I do with the fact that some of the same companies who manufacture weapons for the private market also supply and make a lot of money from the military-industrial complex, as Eisenhower called it? 
and basically the military war machine. What do I do with that? You know, I, I'm not okay with the fact that if a mutual fund has a defense or weapons screen on it, that it screens out the, you know, the, the companies that serve private individuals and provide arms for private individuals and the companies that make arms for global governments. Those things, to me, are very, very different. You know, so from their perspective, they wrap up a fund and they say this fund doesn't invest in, in defense or weapons. But to me, <laughs> you know, the U.S. Co- here's, a, here's a little example for you. Did you know that U.S. companies supplied the vast majority of technology to the Soviet Union uh, over about a 50-year period to actually build the, the Soviet Union? So who got rich from the Cold War? Who had an incentive to do that? The arms companies. So, you know, they, they, there's a, a, an environment fostered that winds up with billions and billions of dollars of, of arms contracts that make the companies that make the weapons, weapons uh, safe. And the rest of the world pays for it. So I'm not okay with that. But I'm very okay with the fact that if a company produces uh, you know, a better rifle and they can get that rifle into the hand of an individual, that builds freedom uh, because that puts fear of, of, the, of the populace into the government, which is how it should be. So how do I deal with that dichotomy, that, that, dramatic, um, that dramatic difference of something that you know, the something would, would, would be? That's a fairly nuanced view. I, think very, I, th- I would imagine that very few people hold the, the kind of view that I do uh, of seeing those differences. By the way, if you doubt my facts on the Soviet Union, uh, I would encourage you to go and read the books written by Antony Sutton. Uh, the name that you want is Antony Sutton, S-U-T-T-O-N, one of the most careful researchers ever that wrote a number of books. I'll find a link to kind of a summary of him. But he was a, uh, uh, a college professor, and he is one of the most careful researchers. And if you're interested in the Soviet Union and the Cold War, I would encourage you to read his books. It's very interesting. Um, now, so I've just destroyed basically a va- in my mind the, the companies that I'm not okay with, and the you know the uh, something like the Fortune 500, uh, even things. Let me give you an example. So I would consider, let's say that I'm going to talk about maybe a home building company. Uh, is there anything really controversial about a home building company? Was Dr. Horton or one of these these companies? You know, really, frankly, I you know I think they're pretty uncontroversial. I don't know of anything that you know. A home building company, a house building company, is really doing that around the world. That's destructive. That violates my personal ethical, you know, considerations. Uh, I don't know anything about. Um, I don't know anything evil about that they do. But you know what? I guarantee you, they're lobbying Congress to keep the tax incentive for the ownership of houses there and the, the reduction of 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 mortgage interest and the realist. And then you got the the. Um, who is it? The National Association of Realtors constantly uh, lobbying Congress to keep their little perks. That's all a bunch of crap. Get rid of all of it. Um, so I would say, um, from a moral perspective, get rid of that stuff. Clean up the tax code. I'd get rid of. I mean, I'd get rid of income taxes if I could. I'd go to a head tax model, but that's just me. Uh, never going to happen. So whatever. It's one of those weird things. Views I hold that never happened. But um, you know, so I'm not okay with these companies doing this stuff. You know, I'm not okay with the insurance companies lobbying Congress to keep their little perks, and I'm not I'm not cool with that. So I basically throw out the whole system. You know, so what do I do with that? that it brings me in a bind. 
Um, and I could go on and on and on. I could go, you know, racism. You know, do I want to community building? You know, human rights. I can't stand half of the nonprofit organizations. So, in case you can't tell, I'm probably the most skeptical guy you know you're ever going to meet. <laughs> so, and also in case you can't tell, I find the world a very challenging place to live <laughs> with all of my uh, oddball issues and my my points of view that I've I've never met anyone that shared half of them. So. Um, so how do I deal with this? Well, I'm beginning to think that the only thing that I can do, really, that's going to make a difference is just comp- simply to take charge of the things that I know I can affect. And I can't affect the whole world, but I know I can affect a few things. And whether that's big or small, you know, I don't know. I personally have an opinion. I think Sam Walton has helped millions more people than the biggest nonprofit foundation ever did, uh, simply because what he did brought a higher quality of life and a higher standard of living to more people than anything else. And he completely revolutionized the retail industry. And all of us today benefit from that. So if I could, you know, if I could have had the, the if I could have been alive and had the, the prescience to go back and invest with Sam Walton, man, that would be awesome. Now, is the Walmart today the same thing? Probably not, you know. You get to the point where... You get so big and you got to support your stockholders and, you know, it probably changes. But, man, if I could have profited off of what he did, I would, I would love that because what, look at the amazing amount of good that he did for millions of people all around the world. Uh, you know, so, so here's how I'm dealing with it right now. A, you know, I'm just investing in what I know and what I care about. So I started this podcast and I'm investing in it. I'm investing my time. I'm investing my money. Uh, I think I can make a difference in this part of the world. I think I can help people make better decisions. And I think I can help people choose things that more carefully that are helpful for them. I, I really do. And so I'm doing this show. Uh, I've got some side projects that I'm working on that I'd like to invest in. You know, I'd love to see uh, a local agriculture build up in my area. It's, it's horribly weak. Uh, so if I could invest in that, and I would, uh, I haven't figured out how yet, but I, I, I will. Uh, I'd like to invest in guys like the urban farming guys out in Kansas City. You know, they're, they're doing some real work. You want to conquer inner city. Um, I think they're still doing I haven't checked on their projects in a, at least a year. But you want to conquer inner city um, problems. I mean, there's some guys that actually went and did something. Instead of talking about it and forming some stupid massive organization, they just put their money where their mouth was and moved there and started working on projects and started actually helping. You know, I'd love to, me personally, I'd love to invest in, uh, you know, an education company that, that's, 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 re, that's transforming how education is delivered on a global basis and getting it out where it can't be usurped for political gain. Uh, I don't know how to deal with some of this stuff. So I'm not really giving you an answer to it, but I'm telling you I think a lot about it, and I don't know the answers. But here are my answers. You know, frankly, sometimes I wish I could. It really bothers me how so much of our money is kept beyond, you know, in in 401Ks and IRAs, and we can't really touch it. And so then you're forced to basically invest in publicly traded companies because the ability to do something different is very difficult. And so, you know, if you're investing through your 401k, it's kind of hard to take the money out and help a guy get started with a pastured poultry operation in his local backyard. Really is. So, you know, sometimes I wish I could tell people to cash out their 401ks and just go start businesses that change the world. You know, more farmers and it's going to sound, I mean, not pick on them. Uh, 
I don't know. I was going to say more farmers, fewer attorneys, but that would, I just feel bad about that because I like it. You know, I like attorneys and I like law. Uh, anyway, but I can't, I can't, I could never tell. I mean, it's, that's bad advice, but frankly, I think of it sometimes. So sorry, buddy. Um, don't have a better question than better answer for you than that. But I would say probably the, the, the where I would start, at least where I go in my mind is, uh, I, I don't start with socially responsible mutual funds. Um, I start with what can I invest in and who can I touch on, a, on an individual basis is going to make a difference. And I walk away from politics and I just start, I just want to start doing stuff. I'm tired of it. So that's why I'm doing this. And I got a bunch, some other projects as well. A couple of more things and a couple of quick questions, uh, two quick comments and one uh, comment and we're done for the day. So uh, really going to be, we'll see what I hear from this one. This is, how about a long show? Two hours. I got a comment on the 4%, 4% um, show, and the comment was from Fabian. And he said, uh, Joshua, I found this podcast more puzzling than anything else. He said, so far I was relying on the idea of the 4% rule, but now I'm not sure if it's a good idea. Your interview was very theoretical and had no practical element. It was more discouraging because the element I was relying on was devalued. So now, how can I plan my retirement? I know you're saying it should be an individual matter, and that's right, but that doesn't help the individual who is not a financial advisor. How can I build my own plan? The more I read, the more I get the expression, it's a gamble, Fabian. And you can see this comment. It was a public comment on on, on the show, and you can see my response to him. But I thought this was valuable, and I wanted to bring it up and touch on it, and part of the things that I wrote in the comment and a couple of additional things. So... I understand that feeling, and I'm, and I actually, uh, if if Fabian had that and he was willing to write on the comment on the show, I'm sure there's at least a dozen or two other people that had that same feeling, maybe even you. And I didn't intend to kind of take the four percent rule out because, and I want to, and I'm going to emphasize in a minute, the four percent rule is entirely valid. Um, it's kind of tough when something that you rely on highly is kind of taken apart. That really hits you. You know, I've had a lot of things that I used to think these were sure things that they kind of, they fell apart under closer examination. And I really didn't intend to do that with the 4% show, but I get it. I get why that might have happened. And so what I told Fabian is I said, you know, just keep learning your way through it and fact check me and fact check yourself. And then, you know, I hope as, as you, as you move through things, you actually will get more confident in your understanding of the 4% rule and, and how it applies and how it's limited. And I'm going to give a little bit of nuance to it, but I would compare that. I think this happens a lot in financial planning. And that's actually why I'm starting the show is because I had to go through this process of having some of the things that I thought I got to be popped. So for example, you'll notice I have yet to do a single show on insurance on this podcast. And we're at episode, what, 75. I've done, I haven't done a single show on insurance and I've sold a lot of insurance. I'm Frankly, it's just because I'm bored and, t- and don't like talking about insurance. I'm just tired of it. But I'm going to talk about insurance in depth. But I used to feel like I used to be a buy-term insurance and invest the difference guy. I used to say, well, what you should always do is buy term life insurance and invest the difference in mutual funds. That was my go-to situation. But if you go back and you, or if you think back to how I answered Beth's question earlier in this show, you're going to find a little bit of a different, more nuanced answer. And so I had to learn that maybe there were other situations where my buy term and invest the difference um, – you know, kind of had to get adjusted. And then I had to learn, 
okay, well, maybe then it's term insurance and whole life insurance. And I didn't like universal life insurance because I always found these policies falling apart. And then I had to have that challenge, and I had to go back and figure out, oh, wait a second, how could I use a universal life insurance policy to solve this problem? And then I, you know, so each one of those things was I had a rule that I had in my mind that I said, here's a rule that I can stand on. And now it, uh, you know, somebody brought something else, and I, ah, I have to learn my way through it. So this is going to happen, and and Fabian, stuffs you can't fall on one thing, just like the four percent rule, because the four percent rule has a bunch of assumptions built into it that that if those assumptions were to stop being true, then the entire thing would fall apart. Now, if you don't know those assumptions, and most people don't, but if you don't understand those assumptions, then when somebody comes and uh, you know says does something like I did with my show. Then you can feel like, ah, I, where, what do I, what do I depend on? But my goal is not to break the four percent rule. My goal is just to illustrate the assumptions that are under it, and then you can feel confident about, uh, you can feel confident about how you would actually appro- approach it, and then you can feel good about knowing where the margins of safety is and how to do it. And here's the metaphor that occurs to me: I live in Florida. So I, we don't get snow, and, and it doesn't ice here. And I see sometimes people walking on ponds, and I've—let me think to make sure this is true. Right. Okay, so I've never walked on a frozen pond or a frozen lake uh, that I can have any recollection of. I've been in snow, but I've never walked on a frozen pond or a frozen lake. And frankly, I probably wouldn't because I would be scared that the ice were going to fall through. Because I'm not comfortable. All I've seen is I've seen movies where people fell through the ice, and I don't know like how thick does ice have to be. If I can see the water, is that too thick or is that too thin? And so I'm I would be worried about not knowing how to make that judgment. But for somebody who grew up in Minnesota, who you know, or who in Canada, or, or uh, my friend who called um, uh, Derek, who called from Canada, you know, he knows what a pond, how to walk on an icy pond. So he doesn't. He knows when it's safe and when it's not. So that's what it is, I would say, with things like the 4% rule, is that it's an entirely valid rule. But once you're familiar with it, once you understand it, you can know where that margin of safety is. And then you can feel confident about sometimes pushing your withdrawals from 4% to 8% in the times where it's that. And you can figure out how to work that plan. So that's the best example that, that, can, that I can encourage you with. Keep learning your way through. I find, you know, even just last week, I had one of my bubbles popped. Uh, The bubble that popped for me was I've never been a fan of equity indexed annuities because the the expenses, the internal expenses of them are generally quite high. And when you understand the limitations on the product and on the annuity product and the insurance product, I've just never really been a fan and I've never seen how they could fit. But I sat down and I had that really challenged. So my advice to clients in the past was, no, don't buy an equity index annuity. Had some guys in my master's degree class, very competent, very knowledgeable guys, that were talking about some features of it. And we were talking it through that even with the disadvantages, I could see some places where I could use that product in the financial plan in a positive way. So like this, I'm no different. Here was the thing I thought I, I knew, don't buy equity index annuities. And here I was having something added to that and saying, wow, wait a second, how did I get that wrong? Maybe I need to keep learning. So keep learning. The 4% rule is an entirely valid and extremely useful planning concept. So like I said in the interview, or like Dr. Faust said in the interview, remember, Many advisors view the 4% rule as like the absolute safe floor and would actually feel comfortable with a higher distribution number. 
So Fabian, if for your retirement you're shooting for you know 25 times your annual expenses, as that's your goal for your retirement fund, you're going to be well on track and you're going to be in great shape. Okay, but you do need to understand there are a lot of assumptions in that four percent rule. So you know the example that occurred to me is you know we talked about it with Dr. Fow. Are, are you in a market where the four percent rule is valid? So in the U.S., the four percent rule would work. But what if you live in Japan and your money were in the Japanese stock market? Or what if you're in Europe and your money is in your local market? Does the, does the rule hold up in that, uh, in that situation? I don't know. Actually, I actually don't know that answer. Um, so that would be a, an important assumption is that where is your money invested? It's also possible that a market like the U.S. market could change. And that's what I tried to point out with Dr. Fow is that it, it, every investment prospectus for every investment says there's no guarantee that the future will be like the past, but yet sometimes we still assume that the future is going to be like the past, and there's no guarantee of that. Is it likely? I think so. You know, be some. Well, let me rephrase. I don't think the future will be like the past, uh, but I think it'll probably be better. But better may be defined in different ways. Uh, back to my Walmart example, you know, Walmart, I believe, has done major good for for millions of people, but there were a lot of people that got hurt along the way. There are a lot of businesses that are closed today because Walmart came to town. That's tough. Um, so we don't have any guarantees that, that the future will be like the past, so you need to understand that. Uh, you know, whether, what, what about the U.S. market? You know, the, the U.S. market right now, the U.S. business climate, is really pretty unfriendly toward entrepreneurship. really is. So you see that in the corporate inversions that are happening. Many companies are wishing to move to other places. Many companies uh, are moving major important subsidiaries there, whether this is the famous ones over the last couple of uh, months, whether it was Walgreens or whether it was Burger King moving to Canada. Uh, or this happened, remember when, what, uh, what's that company that did all the contracting stuff um, that Dick Cheney... Uh, Halliburton. When Halliburton moved to Dubai, you know, they moved to Dubai a few years ago. There are companies all over the place that are moving abroad. So where are those companies going to want their, their stocks to be traded? Are they going to be traded on the U.S. exchange or are they going to move to another exchange? Uh, as some of the Asian companies, there seems to be major growth in Asia. As some of the Asian companies and some of the business environment becomes more transparent and more, uh, more transparent and more structured, that could affect the investment markets. So I don't know what those things are going to be, uh, but those are important. Uh, probably the biggest problem with the 4% rule, Dr. Fallon and I didn't talk about this, but the biggest problem I have with it is that the actual return of the average investor is less than half of the return of their average investment. So all of this research that we have is based upon index returns, but we know that the average, returner get, the average investor gets less than half of the return of the average investment. And that's a major deal. That's a major deal. Uh, we gotta, we've got to control for So let's say that we control for that with hiring an investment advisor. Well, now the 4% rule becomes the 3% rule. Because if you're taking 1% off for fees, you can't count on the 4% rule because that's money's lost to fees. So, again, half the audience would say, well, why would you ever do that? Well, because the average investor doesn't actually invest successfully without good investment, without a good, um, I will use Nick Murray's words, behavioral investment counselor. So how do you fix that? You can fix it in a variety of ways, but it's a problem that has to be fixed. 
And then another good example, and we'll talk in detail about some of the ideas that the financial planning community has come up with about how to actually do these distributions. But I wrote in the comment to Fabian, and I'll read it here, is uh, Dr. Fowler wrote a paper in the May 2011 Journal of Financial Planning, and his paper was entitled Safe Savings Rates, A New Approach to Retirement Planning Over the Life Cycle. And I'll read one paragraph from that that, that um paper where we, he talks about something called the safe withdrawal rate paradox. And we didn't mention this in our, in our interview either. But he says, quote, this study can be interpreted as providing a resolution to the safe withdrawal rate paradox, which David Jacobs, 2006, and Michael Kitsis, 2008, developed independently. Consider the following. At the start of 2008, person A and person B each have accumulated $1 million. Person A retires and with the 4% rule is permitted to withdraw an inflation-adjusted $40,000 for the entirety of her retirement. In 2008, both Person A and Person B experience a drop in their portfolio to $600,000. Person B retires in 2009 and the 4% rule suggests he can withdraw an inflation-adjusted $24,000. The paradox is that these seemingly similar individuals experience such different retirement outcomes. So if you grasp that, these are seem to be two very similar cases, and yet the one has $40,000 to live on for retirement, and the other has $24,000 to live on for retirement. But do they really? So you can see that sometimes the problem with the 4% rule is not actually the rule, but actually how do you implement it? So if you retire today in 2014, do you feel comfortable withdrawing 4% of your portfolio for the rest of your life? What if in 2015 we have a 35% market decline and your portfolio goes from a well 40% market decline so your portfolio goes from a million to $600,000? Do you still feel comfortable withdrawing the 4% off of what off of your portfolio that you calculated in 2014? It's a question that you have to answer. So uh, the 4% rule, in my opinion, is a very useful strategy. But do we choose 4% in 2008? Do we choose 4% in 2014 at market highs? I don't have the answers to those questions except in an individual situation and in talking about strategies. But hopefully that will help you to understand some of the ways that you can add additional information to it and um, – think it through and how my issue is not with the rule, but actually there's some actual challenges of implementing implementing the results of the rule. So Fabian, I hope that helps. And for the rest of you who may have had that reaction, I don't want I don't wish that was not the reaction I desired. The reaction was just to help impart a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of thinking to help you challenge that and learn your way through it. One more question, one more comment. Other question um comment from uh, didn't I didn't write the name down here it was a comment on my show about uh, where I the where I talked about my, my history at, at uh, Fincon and it says Joshua enjoy your podcast thanks for all the hard hard work I know you put into it quick question regarding your two-week trip living out of your car what did you do for showering <laughs> I've always liked the idea of traveling for a period of time living out of my car. My only experience was back in college road tripping around Greece where my buddy and I lived out of a subcompact Hyundai Getz for a few few days. We bathed in rivers and in sinks for the week, which worked okay as we could dress pretty casual as a tourist. But imagine it would be more difficult in a conference setting where you need to be a little bit more presentable. Thanks again and look forward to listening to more of your podcasts. <laughs> 
I apologize that I didn't mention that. And I figured some more people would have that question as well. So it was actually different. My easy solution to that was either A, to shower at a gym. That's what it seems like most of these people who live in their cars do. Or B, simply just to get a hotel room you know, every few days if I needed one. Uh, but what I actually wound up doing was in New Orleans, I couldn't find a convenient gym. But I wound up uh, swimming in the pool at the, at the hotel where the conference was. So I didn't need a, a key, a room key to access the pool. So every night I just went up and went swimming in the pool. It was kind of a pain because the I didn't use soap in the pool or anything like that. Don't worry. Um, but uh, it was kind of a pain because I had the chlorine on me and I didn't couldn't get the chlorine off because there was nowhere to shower. But I um, was there a shower at the pool? I didn't actually shower at the pool, but that would be my other answer to it. Is you know what that that was going to be the next thing. So. There's probably the way I would handle that though in the future would be most pools would have a shower and I didn't even think of that till just now. The second thing, so the, so I did that when I was in New Orleans. The second week when I was in Pennsylvania, I just went to a local gym and just told him, "Hey, um, you know, I'm in town. Uh, could I borrow a shower? I don't have a place to take a shower." And they uh, let, let me do it, and um, that was super nice. I didn't even have to buy a day pass, but that was my other plan was to buy a day pass. So. I encourage you to try, try it out. Um, the thing about traveling in the car, biggest expense of road tripping is usually gas. And if you can cut that expense uh, by a massive amount by going with the car instead of a, you know, a, an RV, that can be huge. And then the second biggest expense is accommodation. So I would want to make sure I had some, you know, a tent and stay at some campgrounds or stay out in the woods. But I, I thought you might enjoy the answer to that question. Finally. I close with this comment, which was a very perceptive comment, I thought, when from Dave when I was out of town. And he said it was a comment on the, sh- the short show that I released on the impact of hobbies. And he said, Hi, Joshua. Thanks for all the work you've put into making your podcast. While I really enjoy your lengthy interviews and detailed analyses and considerations, this short little piece on hobbies was quite insightful and worthwhile, too. Per your comment at the end of the episode, I thought I'd write a short message describing to you how my hobby has helped out my personal finance adventure. I'm a 32-year-old white-collar type in accounting and audit, and just now, with the help of this episode, realized that my single major hobby has contributed more towards my upcoming financial independence than I had ever considered. Since I was in junior high school, I've been a dedicated martial artist, training three to four nights per week, going on about 20 years now. After listening to this podcast, it's fascinating to consider that, for about $75 per month, martial arts has helped me to stay very fit, avoid, and hopefully continue to avoid, expensive health costs, keep my home-cooked diet healthy and rather low cost, keep my social drinking in check, and has given me a great social circus circle at a very low cost circus. <laughs> That's going to be my new saying. Has given me a great social circus. Excuse me. <laughs> Has given me a great social circle at a very low cost of $75 per month, 15 nights per month, equals $5 for a night out kicking and punching my friends. Since I live in a major city, I can easily walk or ride my bike to this hobby and work, and so that I don't have need of a car. This hobby, without my ever really thinking about it, has helped me to construct a lifestyle that is healthy, challenging, social, and rewarding, and all while keeping things on the cheap. So thanks again for the podcast. It's given me a great aha moment this morning. Whenever I feel lazy in the future about getting up and training martial arts, I'm sure I can find a little extra motivation by thinking about how this specific hobby fits into the broader picture of personal finance. Yes, yes, it's all coming together now. Hope you're enjoying your weeks away, Dave. 
I just thought that was the coolest comment. Uh, I really did. And I had another comment from a listener who said, you know, I gave up triathloning for the same point at the, the expense of the hobbies, Ironman triathloning. And I just thought, what a great, you know, two things to compare, you know, the, the, the low cost and the, all those benefits that Dave talked about with his hobby, as well as, uh, you know, an expensive hobby like triathlon, which is awesome. I think it's cool. I know a few people who are Ironmen, but um, consider that yourself. Consider the things that you give your time and attention to. And as we go into a weekend here, uh, although I'd be surprised, you know, it's 4.37 as I finish recording this. I'd be surprised if you listen to this on Friday. But as we're going through a weekend or it's the start of a week, consider is there a way where you can integrate some of these things together? And Can you think of a hobby that's going to enhance your health and also your finances and keep, you, keep your social drinking in check, <laughs> as Dave said, um, allow you to have time with your family? Can you stack those functions? Because if you can, it can open up a, a, a great deal of margin in your life. And maybe that's the type of thing that could help out uh, in your specific situation. So thank you for listening. I appreciate it very much. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I wanted to make sure that I got you the answers to these questions. And even though it looks, looks, looks like we're at about two and a half hours here, uh, that's the point of podcasting. Hit pause if you don't like this kind of stuff. But I wanted to make sure I answered these questions. Uh, that concludes all of the questions that I wanted to answer for next Friday's Q&A. So if you would like to get your question on next Friday's Q&A, please call it in or email it in, and I will handle that next Friday. Uh, I love doing these questions because it gives me a chance to share with you some thoughts and concepts in a more succinct way than my creating an entire show on it. So if you've got a question for me, email me, joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com is my email address, or come by the show on the website and leave me a voicemail. Thank you for being here. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening. I really do value all of the comments and all of the feedback. Have a great day, everybody. 